not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And this is a podcast where we talk about domestic terror warrior Tucker Carlson. Domestic terror warrior. Yeah, a bit a bit more esoteric on that one, I think. That does not give me good feelings about the rest of this episode. Do we have to talk <laughs> about domestic terror? So much, so much domestic terror. Oh boy. Uh, we're not talking about Cal Rittenhouse, though. How? <laughs> <laughs> no Black Lives Matter supporter, Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, air quotes. <laughs> BLM supporter, Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, yeah, welcome to the show. Uh, first of all, we have pa- patrons to thank. So, let's see. Mike is just asking questions. Thank you very much, Mike. <laughs> thank you, Mike. And Martin is just asking questions. Thank you, Martin. And... Off the planet in the... No. Off planet in the Falklands is just asking questions. Thank you very much, off planet in the Falklands. Uh, And then finally, um, Adam is our sworn enemy tier. So uh, thank you very much, Adam. Very, very generous uh, tier. Thanks a ton, Adam. Yeah. Uh, And thank you to all of our kind patron supporters. Um, Everyone has been very helpful. (laughs) So, Tyler, we have an episode to go over. And this is not an episode that I thought we were going to do, but something snuck up on me that I felt like we had to cover. Okay. Um, the first part of this, as I'm kind of setting the table, is going to be a little bit uh, of a winding road, but I promise it connects. Okay. I will do my best to keep up. <laughs> so, in the aftermath of Patriot Purge, I'm really thinking, I mean, I still stand by our episode, but... I think if I had it to do again, I would have done an episode for each part of the Patriot Purge documentary, because I keep, I I, I knock down kind of everything on the surface level, but as more time has passed, I keep finding more and more things where there's more depth than I thought there was, Uh, and this is kind of one of those. So we're going to hear a few clips again from Patriot Purge at the beginning here. Okay. Um, They're going to be out of order. We played them in order before, so I figure it's carte blanche now. Okay. Um, but before we dive into that, we have to talk a little bit about blood libel. Blood libel. What do you know about blood libel, Tyler? Uh, nothing. I've heard people say it before, and they're usually not people that I trust. <laughs> Good instincts. <laughs> <laughs> so, blood libel is one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes in existence. Oh. Um. Okay. Blood libel is a major theme throughout the history of anti-Semitism. In this most common permutation, it takes the form of accusations that Jews kill uh, non-Jewish children, and especially Christian children, in order to use their blood in religious rituals. Okay. Uh, So we're already unhinged. (laughs) Uh, A precursor um, kind of dates back to Myths about Jews kidnapping Christians to reenact the crucifixion. And then from there, it sort of evolved into this blood is needed to make the matzah bread, which is the bread used during Passover. What? Yeah. Um, it, never mind that the Jewish religion explicitly forbids consuming blood. Uh, <laughs> that's beside the point. 
Um, but blood libel dates back to at least the early Middle Ages, and it has often been a precursor to mob violence and pogroms against Jews, and has occasionally led to the decimation of entire Jewish communities. According to historian Walter LaCour, there have been about 150 recorded cases of blood libel resulting in the arrest or the killing of Jews throughout history. In almost every case, Jews were murdered, sometimes by a mob, sometimes following torture and a trial. For one of the earliest examples, we can look to William of Norwich. So this was in the 12th century in Norwich, England. A boy named William was found dead in the woods outside town, and a monk by the name of Thomas Monmouth accused local Jews of torturing and murdering the boy. And from that sprang the myth that each year, Jewish leaders around the world would meet to choose the country and town from which Christians would be apprehended and murdered for this ritual. So here we see kind of some of the early precursors to the modern secret Jewish cabal myths. And also an example of a bad fiction villain. <laughs> yeah, it, th th this is all fucking insane, but it has had horrific consequences on a lot of people. Y yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to... I'm <laughs> oh, not... no, le le levity is more than welcome. We're going to need it. <laughs> so... In 1840, members of the Damascus Jewish community were charged with kidnapping and killing a Christian priest who had disappeared. Several notable Jews from Damascus were tortured to extract confessions, and an angry mob destroyed a synagogue and its Torah scrolls. Jews were massacred repeatedly in the Muslim world, partly as a result of this libel, which had been imported from Christian society. Blood libels continued even into the 20th century as well. In 1913, a Ukrainian Jew named Menahem Mendel Bielis was charged with ritually killing a Christian child whose body was discovered near a local brick factory in Kiev. During a sensational trial, numerous suspected Russian intellectuals and scholars testified that Jews attacked Christians and used their blood in obscene rituals. Ultimately, Bielis was acquitted of the charges, but not before horrific anti-Semitic claims were repeated and broadcast throughout Russia. A blood libel even occurred in Messina, New York in 1928, when a four-year-old girl went missing from her home. A rumor spread that local Jews had kidnapped and killed her. Crowds gathered outside Messina's police station, where the town's rabbi had been summoned. A state trooper questioned the rabbi, asked him whether Jews offered human sacrifices or used blood in rituals. The girl was eventually found alive and unharmed. Even after the Holocaust, in 1946, an accusation of blood libel incited a vicious attack on Jews in Poland that resulted in dozens of deaths and forced many more to flee. These are only a handful of selected examples. I mean, history is littered with instances of this happening. And a lot of people don't realize the extent to which this myth is still with us today. But when conspiracy theorists now talk about this shadowy cabal of elites, uh, killing children to get the adrenochrome in their blood yeah i was gonna say that like the second you told me what blood libel was i'm like that sounds like QAnon's thing yeah exactly like it, the, the the adrenochrome conspiracy theory dates yeah. directly back to blood libel you can draw a straight line also that i i don't want to misrepresent anyone here but i don't get the QAnon thing because Aren't they? They're they're pedophiles, but they also eat the babies. The pedophilia is really a means to an end because if the children are tortured, then they'll produce more adrenochrome. Okay, okay. So is so is it like pedophilia and then cannibalism, or is there are there? Th like that's two... my understanding of the procedures. Yes. Okay, that seems a little 
unnecessarily efficient. Maybe you could have <laughs> maybe you could have two separate rooms. So for all the all for uh, since Q is listening, I'm sure. Um, Q, I know you're <laughs> I know you're a big fan. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe, maybe in your, in your shadowy cabal headquarters, uh, you could just put up an extra wall or two. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it, that's just a very bare bones description of blood libel. There's a lot of history to read on this if you're interested. Um, but that's kind of our functional understanding we can work with as we go forward into this episode. Okay. So quick is blood libel the fictional act that Jews quote unquote commit, or is blood libel the accusation that Jews do that? Uh, the accusation. Okay. Got it. So, with that behind us, we need to briefly dip back into the first part of Patriot Purge. You might remember from the Patriot Purge episode that one of Tucker's primary sources for part one is Darren Beatty. We've talked about Darren Beatty twice now. But his background is important here, so I'm going to briefly go over it again. Beatty first came to national attention as a speechwriter for the Trump administration. He was fired, however, after it came to light that he'd been a speaker at the 2016 H.L. Mencken Club Conference. The club itself is named after Henry Louis Mencken. Mencken was a popular writer and essayist and an outspoken opponent of representative democracy, which he viewed as a system in which inferior men dominated their superiors. If you want a, an idea of what Mencken was like, allow me to quote a passage from the 1930 edition of his essay, Treatise on the Gods, quote, The Jews could be put down very plausibly as the most unpleasant race ever heard of. As commonly encountered, they lack many of the qualities that mark the civilized man. Courage, dignity, incorruptibility, ease, confidence. They have vanity without pride, voluptuousness without taste, and learning without wisdom. Their fortitude, such as it is, is wasted upon puerile objects and their charity is mainly a form of display. He also has several uh, very, very racist quotes, quotes against black people, most of which I'm not comfortable reading. That's the guy this club is named after. I sure do wish that this was like something that happened in the past, and we were over it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's There's going to be a lot of that. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, some... H.L. Mencken apologist will point out that his racial views seemed to soften later in his career. In a subsequent edition of Treatise of the Gods, Mencken had that section about Jews removed. And during during World War II, Mencken criticized the Roosevelt administration's refusal to accept Jewish refugees and called for their blanket admission to the U.S. So at the very least, it does seem to be the case that he became less anti-Semitic as he aged. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said of the club that bears his name today. The modern H.L. Mencken Club is, essentially, a vehicle for dressing up white nationalism with a veneer of academic credibility, and it has platformed various white nationalist figures over the years, including Jared Taylor, the editor of the racist publication American Renaissance, and Peter Brimlow, the founder of VDARE, another white supremacist website with a fervent anti-immigrant bent. And in fact, it was at the very first Mencken Club conference in 2008, where their founder, Paul Gottfried, first coined the term alt-right. Interesting. So, Darren Beatty was a speaker alongside Peter Brimlow at this conference in 2016. When that came to light, it got him fired from the Trump administration, though he was eventually rehired to a different position. I, I remember that. Yeah. So, 
since and this will be a little bit of retread too. Um, since the twilight of the Trump administration, Beatty ha- has shifted focus to his website Revolver News, which is mostly a Drudge Report style right wing link aggregator, but they occasionally publish their own articles as well. It was a Revolver News article that initially formed the basis for Tucker's conspiracy theory that the FBI orchestrated the events of January 6th, which is the thread that eventually grew into Patriot Purge. So it makes sense that BD had a big role to play in Patriot Purge. His voice is actually the first one that we hear when the documentary begins. The domestic war on terror is here. It's coming after half of the country. The January 6th assault on the Capitol and the tragic deaths and destruction that occurred underscored what we have long known. The rise of domestic violent extremism is a serious and growing national security threat. The Biden administration will confront this threat with the necessary resources and resolve. You thought the first war in terror was dysfunctional, unjust, counterproductive. Wait until you get war on terror 2.0. Yeah, so that was the intro to Patriot Purge that was Darren Beatty narrating. And you can tell it's really serious because they added a bunch of bombs. Yeah, that's how you know there's a gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> so let me get this straight. This guy, Beatty, whose first name I forgot already, um, was fired from the Trump administration for his association with the Mencken Association, which is extremely anti-Semitic. And then he got rehired and then he got rehired, but then left and then created a revolver news. And then Tucker was like, yeah, this is the guy who knows what's going on. And I'm going to use his work as a thesis for my documentary. Yes. Yeah, because it, it was that Revolver News article that originally um, presented the whole unindicted co-conspirator thing. And that was what set Tucker first on the path that the FBI was behind January 6th. Wow, this is so much worse than I thought it was. <laughs> Just fucking wait, my friend. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, This whole last week of my life was, this is so much worse than I thought it was. (laughs) Um, So so here we'll start to get to the point. Um, During his appearance in Patriot Purge, Beatty says this. Darren Beatty of Revolver News is one of the few in media who's done real reporting on what actually happened on January 6th. The establishment narrative was MAGA blood libel. Okay. There it is. MAGA blood libel, which at the time I flagged as a dog whistle, but didn't pay much attention to beyond that. And he's clearly trying to, like, brand the phrase because he says it again. Officer Sicknick died of natural causes. He did not die at the hands of the MAGA mom. And yet you still see in the mainstream media this reporting that it was a deadly mob. They got the word deadly from this false reporting on Sicknick. It was a blood libel. And again... The national security state was operationalized on the basis of that narrative. Now, using the phrase blood libel to describe the supposed persecution of Trump voters in this Mm -hmm. context is pretty shitty on its face, considering, you know, they were a lot of QAnon supporters at the January 6th event that literally believed in blood libel. Yep. But like I said, I, I didn't think that much of it. I just, oh, this is a shitty guy saying a shitty thing. So now we have to take one more quick detour. 
because this rabbit hole goes quite a bit deeper than I thought. Let's put a pin in Darren Beatty for a minute because I have to introduce you to another character. It's time for us to meet Mike Enoch. And now that Mike Enoch is in play, a content warning applies to the rest of this episode. Oh boy. I know that we listen to a lot of fucked up racist shit on this show, but we have not dealt with anybody as explicit as Mike Enoch before. And he's going to be using language and invoking themes that some might find difficult to listen to, so just be warned. And I didn't take your warning seriously last time and was very shocked by what I ended up listening to, so... <laughs> um, since we've never heard Mike speak before, I thought that this clip would be a good introduction. This is Mike giving a speech at the Texas A&M University. And I enjoy this video because this audience really fucking hates Mike's guts. The whole time that he's speaking, people are getting up and leaving in droves, and the people who stay are all flipping him off and booing at him. Uh, good. Uh, so I think that adds a little spoonful of sugar to our introduction to this piece of shit. But white privilege is a conspiracy theory. There's no empiricism to this belief. The purpose of white privilege, which is taught in this university, is to marginalize, stigmatize, and incite violence against white individuals. And this crowd out here is the proof of it. You out there are the proof that this concept of white privilege is meant to attack white identity, attack white people, and incite violence against us. And that is what you all have been incited by. You are products of a system of indoctrination that has led to the marginalization and attacks on white people. Diversity is another word. Diversity, what does that mean to you as a white person? If you're a white person in this audience and you hear the word diversity, what does that mean to you? It means you're not going to get into that school. You're not going to get that job. You're not going to get that promotion. It's an attack on you. It's an attack on your identity and your ability to live and thrive. Diversity is anti-white. That is what it means. And anytime you hear the word diversity in his college, in a job, in the government, you know what that means. It means fewer white people. It means an attack on white people, and it means ultimately the elimination of white people. And this conspiracy theory of white privilege is used as a way to justify this policy. And all of you have been incited by these concepts, and that is why you are here threatening violence against us simply for speaking our minds. And this is also what led to the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, when white people simply wanted to gather together and speak their minds, and you cost somebody their life. So I hope you're proud of yourselves, and that's all. Thanks, fam. Mike, you're allowed to breathe when you talk. He sounds like he's constantly out of breath that entire time. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's on a large amount of cocaine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that's Mike Enoch. What do you think? Um, you know, could use some deep breathing exercises. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty cringe. I, I don't know. What... <laughs> What do you say about a white supremacist? He, uh, okay, okay. Uh, it's cute. It's cute that he thinks that white people are being discriminated against. Cute is the word I would use to describe <laughs> Mike Enoch. <laughs> um, okay, so so who is this guy? Enoch's real name is Mike Pinovich. <laughs> oh, I wonder why that might not go over well with his, uh, with his audience. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was actually doxxed, and it was revealed that his wife was Jewish, um, so now, what the fuck? Yeah, so now a lot of his fans uh, think that he's like a secret agent of Israel or something. 
Um, or former fans, I guess. So the first line of Mike's Wikipedia page describes him as, quote, an American neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, Holocaust denier, blogger, and podcast host. You'll notice that they put those in ascending order of most horrible. <laughs> True. Never trust a <laughs> podcast host. Pinovich first drew national media attention for using a Sig Heil salute at a conference celebrating Donald Trump's 2016 election victory, organized by one Richard B. Spencer. Uh, so Mike Enoch and Richard Spencer used to be friends. They seem to not like each other anymore. Um, you know, friends drift apart. Um, in response to Spencer saying, hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory, Pinovich led the audience in a series of Nazi salutes, which a journalist caught on camera and was picked up by mainstream media outlets. Uh, but Mike was already well entrenched in the Sieg Heil scene long before then. He launched his website, The Right Stuff, all the way back in 2012. The Right Stuff, often abbreviated as TRS, hosts white supremacist blogs and discussion forums, as well as various podcasts. In 2014, Enoch launched the network's flagship podcast, The Daily Shoah. So, Shoah is the Hebrew word for Holocaust. So, the name of their podcast is literally The Daily Holocaust. Ah, Pinovich, now using the pseudonym Mike Enoch, was one of the hosts of The Daily Shoah, and later another show on the network called Strike and Mike, which he co-hosts with a guy named Eric Stryker, who we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, the Daily Shoah has a large audience for shows of its kind. Like, not crazy huge, but big enough that it should scare you. Um, they pull around 100,000 listeners. That is entirely too many. Yeah. Um, about 100,000 too many, but... <laughs> yeah. And it's been pretty influential in the extremely online right wing. They played a big role in popularizing the term cuckservative to describe mainstream conservatives. And they also created the echo meme. Do you know about this? No. So it's a thing where the um, anti-Semitic posters will put three parentheses around the names of Jewish people on message boards and stuff. Okay, I have seen this. I didn't know what it was called. Yep, and and they do that because on The Daily Show, what they had a gag where whenever they said a Jewish name, they would add, like, an echo sound effect. And so the, the parentheses became a way of mirroring that in text. Okay, all right, so that's what that is from. Yeah, I've seen that, like, people put parentheses around stuff to, like, indicate that it's part of the Jewish problem or whatever. <laughs> um. So, in simple terms, Mike Enoch is a huge piece of shit. But you may ask, why are we talking about him today? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Lately, I've been spending a lot of time on the Tucker Carlson subreddit. Which, by the way, is a cesspool. Like, however bad you think it is, it's twice that bad. Um, yeah. But during my time there, I noticed that on almost every thread about critical race theory, there was an identical comment. Let's stop calling it CRT or even critical race theory and start calling it what it is, anti-white hate, followed by a link. That link brings you to a, to a website for the National Justice Party. Now, Tyler, how do you feel about national justice? <laughs> this, friends, is what you call a trap. <laughs> I, I, proud socialist Tyler, think that justice is good, actually. All right, now tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have some bad news. Um, the National Justice Party was founded in August of 2020 by one Mike Pinovich, our old pal Mr. Enoch. Very the recent, 2020? Yeah. That was like this year. Yeah, somehow. 
Oh God, no, it's not. Time is meaningless. <laughs> the joke, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> I started doing a podcast at some point, and then now it's today. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, th- this party is exactly what you'd expect. Here's the text from their About Us page, if you had any doubts. The National Justice Party is an organization that will advocate for white civil rights, the working and middle class, and the traditional family against our corrupt and illegitimate institutions. The unelected oligarchy that controls government, media, finance, and industry in the the United States has declared white Americans to be second-class citizens. Whites are placed at the very bottom of the racial preference scale for employment and education. The mainstream media broadcasts an unending torrent of degenerate, anti-white propaganda across the internet and TV screens. The police and courts turn a blind eye to violence against whites in the streets. This situation is intolerable and must be answered. We will use our constitutional rights to challenge the consensus view among wealthy elites, politicians, and intellectuals that white people are not a legitimate group and are not deserving of advocacy. We refuse to allow the very real issues affecting our people to be ignored and trivialized. Our aim is political self-determination for white Americans and the restoration of the European values upon which this country was founded. Uh, I was like with them for the first line or two, and then they're and then they're like, everything in this country is designed to destroy the white man. It's like, damn it! But like, there are unelected people who are in control of the world and disenfranchise average people like you and me. But they're billionaires. They're not. Yeah, the Jews. I, like, th- th- there's a reason this stuff works because people have a very real sense that something is fucked up in yeah. the, out there, you know. And then it's right. like, it, this is what's wrong, and it's not your fault. Yeah. They also have on their website a 25 point party platform. Here are a few selections from that platform. One, the United States of America will be declared an outpost of Western civilization in a state dedicated to its European heritage population and their posterity. It will be the policy of the state to set immigration and natal policy that will ensure permanent European majority. The rights of historic minority populations will be respected. 2. We demand the extension of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to provide equal protections and privileges to the white majority, or the act must be repealed. 3. We support the nationalization and strategic breakups of banks, mass media, and monopolistic corporations in order to create public accountability and guarantee that they serve the nation first. 4. We support a 2% ceiling on Jewish employment in vital institutions so that they better represent the ethnic and regional population balance of the country. 5. We support the sacred rights of free speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of association. Political views will not be censored by the state or any large private concerns. It will be illegal for any employer to retaliate against workers for political activism and expression outside the workplace. 6. We support private property rights, including a program to make home ownership more accessible to stably employed family men. Small businesses and communities will be granted the right to refuse service or home ownership to anyone for any reason they see fit. Wonder what that might be. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, 8. We demand that the FBI, which acts as nothing more than a political secret police force for elite interests, be abolished or in place with a legitimate federal law enforcement agency. What does that even mean? <laughs> a legitimate one. <laughs> Not the one that we have. Nine, we demand an end to political contributions and corporate lobbying. Elections must be publicly financed. Ten, 
The corrupt two-party system must be abolished and replaced by a system that offers real representation to racial groups and economic classes. 11. We oppose America's ongoing military entanglements and demand the return of all troops to the homeland. We will engage in diplomacy under the doctrine of America first and cease the internationalist project of exporting liberalism. 12. We will nationalize the defense industry and make war profiteering a criminal act. All able-bodied men will be conscripted into national service. Let's go to 14. We will declare Israel a rogue state and exporter of terrorism. The national rights of Palestinian people must be respected. 15. We will establish a new economic policy that stresses the family wage, full and stable employment, and a strong middle class. We will abolish the income tax on productive work and put this burden on capital and speculative income. 16. We call for correcting the power imbalance between labor and management through a national labor organization that guarantees employee rights. Uh, let's get to... Oh, 19. Healthcare is a right. Healthcare must be removed from the control of for-profit hospitals and insurance companies and made a public service for all people. Preventative care will be emphasized and physical fitness will be promoted. 20. We will restore reason, logic, and tradition to the education system by implementing a comprehensive classical curriculum. Homosexual, neoliberal, and transgender propaganda will be explicitly banned from being taught to children. 21. We will establish a department of culture that will oversee the creation of art and architecture to enlighten the public through beauty and transcendence. Suburbs and small towns will be revitalized with beautification projects to make them walkable and attractive to encourage social life. 22. The state must act as the steward of the environment. Industrial and economic needs will be balanced with quality of life and the preservation of natural beauty. Wildlife will be protected and we will expand the national parks and wilderness areas. Religious slaughter and other inhumane treatment of animals will be banned. 23. We support strong families. Married women will be paid by the state to care for their children. No-fault divorce will be repealed, and homosexual marriage will be banned. And 25. In order to put an end to racial conflict and hate, all people will be entitled to be policed, educated, and judged by individuals of their own race. No longer will any race be exploited for the benefit of another in America. Well, that was frustrating. I, I know. I thought you would have that reaction. <laughs> Like, yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, they have, they just are stuck on this race realism and uber conservative, like, hyper, like, asexuality in society. And just, I don't know, un- or unless you're heteronormative sexuality only is allowed. And then they said, they mentioned, like, labor unions and free healthcare and, like, you know, shit that's good for people. Yeah. But then, but then also, we the races shouldn't mix. Like, yeah, come like on, a two percent ceiling on Jewish employment. <laughs> um, getting rid of no fault divorce. What the fuck is there? Is divorce a fault issue? It's not insurance. What do you? Yeah, it's it, it's essentially like so, it, because before women would have to petition with like a reason for a divorce, um, and the court would have to like think it was valid. They want to okay. go back to that. Okay. Uh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's careful to say, like, the rights of historic minorities will be supported while we, while we encourage natal policy to preserve the white majority. So it's, like, it's, it's not aggressive in its, in its posturing. But um, it would absolutely be aggressive in its, like, uh, enactment. Right, yeah, that's what I want to get to. Like, yeah. we, we know how these things go in real life. Like, we, I mean, you know, yeah. it, it's lit. This is the one thing where you can unequivocally say they cannot give me shit for calling them Nazis. Like, they're Nazis. This is what the Nazis are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we know how that turned out. 
Although they would disagree with our interpretation, I guess. So, hundred percent. That doesn't mean they're right. Don't don't pretend that their opinion's valid on that. Just... <laughs> no, their opinion is absolutely not valid. I, I I I worry that I might have given too much slack on this line. Fuck Nazis unequivocally. Yeah. Just so everybody is clear. Yeah. Um. If you got this far and you thought we were cool with Nazis, sorry, yeah, I guess. Yeah, if, if you're listening to episode 38 of the show, maybe these guys are cool with Nazis, then you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> Agree. So, the website also has a speeches section, where they keep an archive of speeches given by party leaders, including and especially Mike Enoch. I listened to several of them, and one thing that really stuck out to me was that Tucker is essentially just running a few months behind Mike. Patriot Purge came out in November, but here was Mike Enoch speaking about the January 6th insurrection on January 23rd. This was less than three weeks after the storming of the Capitol, and already Mike was on this tip. Yes! Yes! Thank you! Thank you! All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. So we decided to call this meeting just a few days ago because we felt that we had to respond to the unprecedented escalation in the political crisis going on in the United States, and really the whole world, but the United States as a focal point. As we speak, the American oligarchy has declared a new war, a war against the people of this country. Using the events of January 6th as their pretext, they are unleashing a massive crackdown, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and all the other sacred rights and freedoms that belong to us as our right. Yeah, so that is essentially exactly what the narrative of Patriot Purge, um, five months sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Or more than that, like 11 months. January was the first month. Yes. Uh, that's essentially narrative Patriot Purge 11 months sooner. And As we've been over, time is meaningless. <laughs> Yeah, so I cannot stress enough how much it seems like Tucker is just running about a year behind Mike. Here's another clip from Patriot Purge, just to drive home how similar this message is. January 6th is being used as a pretext to strip millions of Americans, disfavored Americans, of their core constitutional rights and to defame them as domestic terrorists. The very same corrupt interest in Washington that pushed the Iraq war under false pretenses are now pushing the lie of a domestic white terror army. <sighs> yeah, so that, we're here. That uh, that speech of Mike's that we were just hearing was called White Scare. Here's one more clip from that speech. It's not just the broad strokes, even the nuances of Mike's rhetoric here are copied in Patriot Purge. This is a new level of political repression in America that we haven't seen in generations. An entire class of people, working people, white people, are being declared enemy terrorists by the system itself. The overblown statements of the media concerning the protests on Capitol Hill about a violent insurrection, a white terrorist mob, we've all heard this I don't know how many times, it's, it's been an incessant refrain for the last three weeks. These are absurd on their face, but they do serve a purpose for the people in power. They serve the purpose being talking points that are seeded by the media, spread by social influencers online, and ultimately repeated by liberal sheep who, once they have repeated them, 
convince themselves it's their own opinion. And then here's Darren Beatty in Patriot Purge again. You link two concepts together, even if they don't belong together. You put it in a headline, you shove it in people's throats enough, then they come to believe it. Okay, so liberal politicians are being fed lines by the elites. Yeah, they they all have they're both saying. they all have like a morning conference call. Where like, this is what this is the line today, guys. Here's your here's your adrenochrome ration. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've made it back to Darren Beatty, I'm ready to bring this full circle and explain what the hell this episode is about. Because I kept poking around on the on the National Justice Party's website, and another of Mike's speeches jumped out at me. This speech took place on July 24th of 2021, and the title is The Blood Libel of Domestic Terrorism. You see where I'm going with this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Darren Beatty got the term mega blood libel from Mike Pinovich. And while I cannot definitively prove a connection between the two, I think by the time we get through this speech, I'll be able to make a convincing argument, and then I'll explain why that's a bigger deal than you might think. So It already seems like a pretty big deal to me, <laughs> Troy. <laughs> yeah, not to bury the lead too much, like this is this is concerning. Yeah. So yeah, here here's the intro to the blood libel of domestic terrorism. That was an amazing speech. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for everybody for being here. Really exciting event. Uh, it's been about a year since we formed the party, and just thanks everybody for everything. So, thank you. When I spoke six months ago in the immediate wake of the January 6th protest, if you're hearing a theme here, uh, we spoke about the government and the media frame up of the protesters as terrorists as crazed right-wing militias plotting a coup against our hollowed institutions of democracy. Despite the obvious farce of this media narrative and the government case against the protesters, the ongoing revenge campaign nevertheless has hurt thousands and even millions of people, not just the individuals that are being convicted in kangaroo courts on bogus charges, but all white Americans who are currently being blood libeled as potentially dangerous terror threats in their own country. It's not going to get better. It's not going to get any better. I'm sorry. Um, and just like, I shouldn't have to point this out. What I'm going to just to make sure all their bases are covered. Um, it's shitty for anyone to appropriate the term blood, blood libel. Uh, it's especially horrific for a, a Nazi to be appropriating that term and acting like it's being done against their people. Yeah. That That is deeply fucked up. And, and, like, just the similarity, right? I mean, with a few tweaks, doesn't that sound kind of like a Tucker monologue? Yeah. Tucker's not that, like, overt about it. No. Like, he says white Americans. Tucker would just say, like, your family. But one of the points I want to make is that, like, it's something I've become really aware of as I've been in more of these Tucker-centric media spaces online is that like, if there's any question about whether or not people were, you know, getting the message, at least some of them are. Um, yeah. Like, I, I don't think that Tucker thinks that he's talking about the Jews when he talks about elites. 
but a lot of his viewers think that he's talking about Jews. I, I can see that. I can see how that would be. I mean, he's he's lifting his entire thesis for his new documentary from an overtly anti-Semitic associated person. Like The exact same shit. It's the exact same narrative. Um, I don't, like, Tucker is so, like, smarmy. I want to assume he's just an idiot, but he's not. Like, he's just... He has to know he's doing this. There are only two writers credited in a Patriot Purge. It was Tucker Carlson and Scooter Downey. A real name? <laughs> Question mark? If he, if Tucker wasn't the one mainlining this, it was Scooter. But either way, like... Yeah. I mean, th- this next bit should sound familiar to you, too. Huge amounts of money and resources have been poured into building cases against the January 6th protesters, even as the narrative that they were lunatic murderers has collapsed. For example, the claim that the crowd murdered Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick was totally debunked when the coroner's report came out and it revealed that he died of a stroke due to a condition unrelated to the protest. It had nothing to do with it. But Officer Sicknick's death continued to be exploited, including by Biden himself, who lied. He lied in a press conference on June 6th saying that Sicknick was killed by the criminals that stormed the Capitol. We've spoken before at previous meetings and today about Richard Big O. Barnett, who was arrested, denied bail by a politically motivated judge, locked in a Washington, D.C. jail where he was beaten by black guards who yelled at him, I hate all white people. This is in court documents. All of this for a simple trespassing charge and he's not the only one okay i remember talking about the officer sicknick stuff i don't actually remember what the conclusion was i'm sorry my memory is terrible that's no, okay it gives me an opportunity to recap okay <laughs> i love your swiss cheese brain <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah it, it was initially misreported that Officer Sicknick had been beaten to death with a fire extinguisher. That was not true. Okay. Um, the source for that claim was two unnamed law enforcement officials who spoke to the New York Times. As more evidence came out that that wasn't what happened, the New York Times and other outlets that reported this did retract the story. As you do. Yeah. When you get more evidence. Yeah, okay. and Tucker and his friends like to pretend it's a conspiracy and they'll say things like they quietly retracted. Like, what does that mean? You just... Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to all those loud retractions. Yeah, right. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Brian Sicknick died of two strokes that he suffered. It, it is possible that like stress from the riots could have led to it or something, or uh, bear spray that he inhaled. But it's not certain enough to make that claim with any confidence. Yeah, and like we we don't need Officer Sicknick to have been killed by rioters for the riot to be bad. Right. Yeah. They were in the fucking Capitol screaming, "Kill Mike Pence!" Yeah. Like, what do you? <laughs> The fact that you have to talk about this Officer Sicknick non-story is evidence that you're fucking nuts. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's just obfuscation. Yeah. Um, It's getting as far away from the point as possible. So the same same narrative cropped up in Patriot Purge with uh, Darren Beatty setting Brian Sicknick as the big example. And he said the exact same thing that Mike Pinovich just said. Um, Darren Beatty said, they used this lie... That Sicknick was killed by the mob, and that was where they got the word deadly, and they've used that to blood libel all these Americans. Um, it's the exact same shit. Officer Sicknick died of natural causes. He did not die at the hands of the MAGA mom, and yet 
You still see in the mainstream media this reporting that it was a deadly mob. They got the word deadly from this false reporting on Sicknick. It was a blood libel. And again, the national security state was operationalized on the basis of that narrative. Uh, like, we're getting into specifics now that are identical. Yeah. Um, and then... It's hard to give you the benefit of the doubt for this long, Tucker. <laughs> Yeah, and this then is a on... show about Tucker Carlson, right? <laughs> and, and his world, <laughs> which apparently is this now. <laughs> thanks, Tucker. Yeah, thanks. Um, and then at the end, there he talked about Richard Bigo Barnett, who appeared in Patriot Purge. I didn't talk about it at the time because I think it's kind of dumb, but it, it is worth mentioning here that maybe part of the reason that Mike Enoch is fond of Bigo Barnett is um. Barnett is quoted as saying, I'm white, there's no denying that, and I, am a, and I am a nationalist, so I must be a white nationalist. Okay, you can paint it pretty colors if you want, that doesn't make being a white nationalist okay. There's, there's deniability in there, it's like, oh, well, he, she's a, he's a boy and he's a friend, um, but, like, <sighs> come on. <laughs> there's, there's a reason that Enoch is sympathetic to Big O. Barnett's play. If I was going to write a book, how to tell people I'm a white nationalist without telling them I'm a white nationalist. <laughs> this wouldn't be on the first page because it's really sloppy and dumb, but like somewhere in there. He's trying to do that, Patrick. I mean, this must be your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> so, Makes uh, sense to me. <laughs> yeah, so in talking about Richard Barnett, Enoch claims that this the story about Richard Barnett being beaten by guards who shot at the hate all white people is in court documents. I couldn't find any court documents matching those claims. But I did find a letter written by Barnett's attorney, Joseph McBride, who also appeared in Patriot Purge. So, not court documents. Yeah. But, yeah, th this letter written by McBride, uh, in it he makes comparisons between the D.C. jail and Guantanamo Bay. McBride is representing Barnett and a couple other J6ers, Barnett's is most high-profile. The subject line of this letter reads, Emergency request to investigate mistreatment to pretrial detainees from the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol protest. So the letter is written to Paul O'Brien, the executive director of, Anth of Amnesty International, and to Anthony D. Romero, the executive director of the ACLU. Uh, the letter was also cc'd to congressional representatives Paul Gosar, Louis Gohmert, Matt Gates, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. In Interesting collection of people yeah at, at least one of those was involved in the planning of the, <laughs> the stop the steal protest paul gosar and you know we we know matt gates and marjorie taylor green very well yes um so in the letter mcbride called for an investigation into allegations of torture on behalf of his clients in the dc jail the letter details seven different incidences of pretrial detainees being tortured in the jail three of these incidences involved richard barnett there is one instance detailed in which Burnett was slammed against a concrete wall and was, quote, verbally abused, but it says nothing of a racial attack, and there is no mention of these guards supposedly shouting that they hate all white people. I will note that McBride's intention in this letter was to make the conditions in the jail seem as inhumane as possible. And more than once, he goes into, into detailed specifics of the harassment perpetrated by the guards. If, in fact, Barnett had been singled out on the basis of his race— McBride would, ver would have every incentive to include that detail in this letter. There is, however, one incidence of a racially motivated attack that is detailed in the letter. That's torture incident number six, 
which describes attacks against another pretrial detainee named Emmanuel Jackson. McBride writes, quote, Jackson was repeatedly being tortured by the guards while detained in D.C. Gitmo because he is a black January Sixer. The incident in which Barnett was allegedly slammed against a wall involved nine guards. And in the case of Emmanuel Jackson, McBride writes that Jackson was tortured by guards, plural. So, if Mike Enoch's version of events is to be believed, then the D.C. jail would have to be inhabited by two separate groups of violent guards committing racially motivated attacks against pretrial detainees, one motivated by anti-black racism and another by anti-white racism. Furthermore, McBride would have to have reported on one instance of a racially motivated attack, but not the other. So my point here is that there's no evidence that guards shouted I hate all white people to Richard Barnett. Enoch is just making that up. Okay, that tracks so far. It's worth noting that out of the six instances of torture outlined in the letter, McBride McBride provides corroborating court documents for only one, uh, which involves Ryan Samsel, not Richard Barnett. And I I do want to, at this point, step back from these specific allegations for a minute and talk about the message that's actually being sent by this. Because Tucker is very much engaged in the same narrative, and I don't think that we've done a great job of countering it up to this point. The argument being made here is that the January 6th rioters being held in the D.C. jail are political prisoners, and are being singled out for particularly harsh treatment by the penal system because of their political beliefs. That narrative is bullshit. Because sedition is a crime. Sedition is a crime. I mean, sort of. There, there are consequences sometimes, maybe. I mean, <laughs> are there consequences for sedition is questionable, but it is constitutionally a crime. <laughs> I mean, Josh Hawley got a book deal canceled, so... Oh, no! <laughs> um, Poor Josh. We talked about in the Patriot Purge episode how 75% of the January 6th defendants had been released pending trial compared to a national average of only 25%. So, the pool of pre-trial detainees being discussed here is smaller than either Tucker or Mike Enoch make it out to be. And the reality is that many more of these defendants have been released from the jail to await trial than you would expect given broader statistical trends. As a whole, this population is being treated particularly well by the penal system. Gosh, I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, weird, right? But when it comes to the defendants who are being held in pre-trial detention... It is true that the conditions they've been subjected to in the D.C. jail system have raised some red flags. In particular, recent complaints of mistreatment from January 6thers led to a review of the D.C. jail facilities by the U.S. Marshal Service. The USMS inspection found general unsanitary conditions in cells, including toilets clogged with large amounts of human sewage, and also witnessed inappropriate behavior by guards who punitively withheld food and water from jail residents. Ultimately, the inspection found what the agency described as systemic failures and unacceptable living conditions. As a result of the inspection, 400 inmates are being relocated to a federal prison in Pennsylvania. That accounts for about a third of the approximately 1,400 currently housed in the D.C. jail. The 40 capital riot defendants whose complaints triggered the investigation are not among the 400 inmates being transferred. So, there are very legitimate concerns about the conditions at this jail, And those concerns are not new. Inmates awaiting trial at the D.C. jail, along with their lawyers and their families, have complained about these conditions for years, to no avail. In 2019, a report by the Office of the D.C. Auditor found similarly hazardous conditions at one facility, including problems with ventilation, room temperatures, sanitary conditions, pests, broken fixtures, and inadequate lighting. 
The 2019 report concluded that the persistence and seriousness of these conditions, quote, clearly point to the need for a new jail. That new jail has obviously never materialized. The city's Department of Health has cited the jail for repeated and uncorrected violations of industry standards related to environmental conditions. And the problem goes back even further. In June of 2015, a report by the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs found what it described as appalling conditions at the jail. In that report's executive summary, it describes alarming physical conditions, including structural and mechanical problems problems that it describes as serious to extremely serious. The report describes, quote, an active infestation of vermin and pests throughout the facility. Inspectors found openings in the walls, damaged concrete in several cell blocks, water penetration through the walls, mold growth, and a leaking roof. Inspectors also noted that, quote, most of the plumbing fixtures were in different stages of disrepair. That 2015 report also found that, among other issues, correctional officers were not provided with sufficient training, public records of, regarding the jail were difficult to obtain, and that suicide prevention practices at the jail were, quote, in need of immediate corrective action. The suicide prevention issue also was not new. In 2013, the jail experienced a rash of four inmate suicides over a 10-month period, after alleged mistreatment of mentally ill inmates. This led to yet another inspection, which culminated in the, culminated in the 2013 Hayes Report. The Hayes Report found that the D.C. jail did not have enough suicide-resistant cells, and that prisoners under observation were subjected to, quote, overly restrictive and seemingly punitive precautionary measures. The Hayes Report also criticized the, the infrequency of monitoring, which demonstrated, quote, complete unconcern for inmate safety. In response to the Hayes Report, the D.C. Department of Corrections did form a suicide prevention task force. However, that task force has not published anything since 2014, and it is unclear whether or not the required remedial measures are implemented or maintained. And then there was the 2013 Ridley Report, the results of yet another inspection, this time pertaining to conditions in the D.C. jail's juvenile unit. The Ridley Report identified significant problems with the condition of confinement for youth, house, for youth housed at the facility, including excessive use of isolation and segregation, and also pointed out that boys held at the facility were only able to visit with family members through video visitation. These complaints have gone largely unaddressed. Plans for a new jail have been discussed since 2010, when the Department of Corrections requested $420 million for a new facility. But, as of 2018, city leaders said that that plan was, quote, placed on pause. Since 2014, the Department of Corrections has requested $330 million for its capital budget, but has received just $31 million. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that a big part of the problem is that since 1997, the jail has been under contract by the Corrections Corporation of America, a for-profit private prison company. That 2015 report by the Washington Lawyers Committee recommended that the District of Columbia not renew its contract with the CCA, and in doing so, found that D.C.'s compensation to the company was 31% higher than the CCA's reported average, meaning that the district was paying out the ass for the privilege of having its jails mismanaged. So, the point here is that these horrific conditions that the January 6 defendants are facing are not new and are not specific to them. They are not being targeted for mistreatment because of their political views, and they are not being treated any differently as political prisoners. They're just getting the same treatment that everybody else in the jail gets, and until it was white conservatives complaining about it, nobody cared.
I could have said that so much faster, like five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I've I've been thinking for several minutes. Like, oh, so white conservatives don't care about jails until they're in there, and uh, and that's that's where we're at. All right, glad we're on the same page. Yeah, that's <laughs> where we are at. <laughs> American prisons—they're bad. As of June of 2018, the average daily population of the D.C. jail was 1,346. 94% of its inmates are men, and 87% are black. You didn't hear Tucker Carlson complaining about these conditions in 2018. You certainly didn't hear Mike Enoch complaining about it. They didn't care. They're mad now because it's happening to white people. There's no clearer example of that than the situation with solitary confinement. For weeks, I've heard Tucker make the claim that the Capitol riot defendants were held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. I looked into this claim, and it turns out that up until June 11th, they probably were, and so was everyone else incarcerated there. So, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, the D.C. jail went went into an extremely restrictive lockdown for more than a year, during which inmates were allowed only one hour a day outside of their cell. This went on for over a year, and the entire time, advocates and health experts decried the practice as a human rights abuse. That should have been a story on Tucker's show. The nation's capital, violating human rights under the pretext of COVID? Tucker should have been furious about that, but he wasn't. It never came up on his show. He never gave a shit, until Big O Barnett and his pals complained about it. Because those are the people that Tucker cares about. So when Tucker Carlson or Mike Enoch or any of these other assholes complain about how terribly the capital defendants are being treated, know that that's a deliberate misrepresentation. They are not being singled out, it's that bad for everyone. And in fact, it wasn't until the capital defendants voiced concern that anybody in power seemed to listen. Yep. Sounds about right. So with that out of the way, let's see how Mike wants to develop this narrative a bit further. Okay. The Jewish Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a press conference on June 15th, that 480 protesters have been arrested. Since then, the number has now grown to over 500. There are thousands of charges pending against these people, and according to Garland, the number of FBI open domestic terrorism cases has increased significantly this year. At the press conference, Garland unveiled the government's first national plan for countering domestic extremism. He referred to a March 2021 unclassified intelligence assessment, which claims that the two most, this is a quote, this is a quote, the two most lethal elements of the domestic violent extremist threat are racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists. So, So he's casting doubt on the idea that domestic terrorism is even a real thing you can be convicted of bingo yep um which okay i know this isn't tucker but i have a feeling that tucker's gonna copy this (laughs) and isn't domestic terrorism something that tucker pretends to care about when he cherry picks some immigrant who committed a violent crime somewhere yes yeah okay like, it, with the, did you hear about the Waukesha, uh, Wisconsin thing that happened last week? I saw it in a title and didn't read anything else. An SUV drove through a Christmas, Christmas parade. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it killed five people um, and injured, like, 20, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, Deja vu. And 
you should have seen the elation on the Tucker Carlson subreddit when it came out that the driver was a black guy. And they immediately spun it into, it was clearly an anti-white terrorist attack, despite having no evidence of that. Uh, and then accused the media of covering it up because it wasn't all anyone talked about. Oh my god. Yeah. What? Uh, I know that was a big story last week. P- pretend that they're not talking about Okay, whatever. Okay. The, this report that Mike is referring to is from the Office of the Director of the National Intelligence... It's titled, Domestic Violent Extremism Poses Heightened Threat in 2021. Mike makes the big deal that this is an unclassified report, and therefore clearly just deep state propaganda. After all, if it was real intelligence, they wouldn't let you see it. Uh, But these types of reports are pretty common and typically are not classified. And honestly, it doesn't contain that much information to begin with. Uh, The report is only four pages, including the title page, and lists the following findings. 1. The IC, that's intelligence community, assesses that domestic violent extremists, DVEs, who are motivated by a range of ideologies and galvanized by recent political and societal events in the United States, pose an elevated threat to the homeland in 2021. Enduring DVE motivations pertaining to biases against minority populations and perceived government overreach will almost certainly continue to drive DVE radicalization and mobilization to violence. Newer sociopolitical developments, such as narratives of fraud in the recent general election, the emboldening impact of the violent breach of the U.S. Capitol, conditions related to the COVID-19 pandemic, and conspiracy theories promoting violence will almost certainly spur some DVEs to try and engage in violence this year. 2. The IC assesses that lone offenders or small cells of DVEs adhering to a diverse set of violent extremist ideologies are more likely to carry out violent attacks on the homeland than organizations that allegedly advocate a DVE ideology. DVE attackers often radicalize independently by consuming violent extremist material online and mobilize without direction from a violent extremist organization, making detection and disruption difficult. 3. The IC assesses that racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, RMVEs, and militia violent extremists, MVEs, present the most lethal DVE threats, with RMVEs most likely to conduct mass casualty attacks against civilians and MVEs typically targeting law enforcement and government personnel and facilities. The intelligence community assesses that the MVE threat increased last year and that it will almost certainly continue to be elevated through 2021 because of contentious sociopolitical factors that motivate MVEs to commit violence. 4. The intelligence community assesses that U.S. RMVEs who promote the superiority of the white race are the actors with the most persistent and concerning transnational connections because individuals with similar ideological beliefs exist outside of the U.S., and these RMVEs frequently communicate with and seek to influence each other. We assess that a small number of U.S. RMVEs have traveled abroad to network with like-minded individuals. Uh, Five, the IC assesses that DVEs exploit a variety of popular social media platforms, smaller websites to targeted audiences, and encrypted chat applications to recruit new adherents, plan and rally support for in-person actions, and disseminate materials that contribute to radicalization and mobilization to violence. Uh, six, I think, that the intelligence community assesses that several factors could increase the likelihood or lethality of DVE attacks in 2021 and beyond, including escalating support from persons in the United States or abroad, growing perceptions of government overreach related to legal or policy changes and disruptions, and high-profile attacks spurring follow-on attacks in, and innovations in targeting and attack tactics. And finally, 
DVE lone offenders will continue to pose significant detection and disruption challenges because of their capacity for independent radicalization to violence, ability to mobilize discreetly, and access to firearms. Uh, after that, there's a page that describes the report's methodology, and then a page listing the categories of violent extremists that they used. Those categories are racially and ethically motivated violent extremists, animal rights or environmental violent extremists, abortion-related violent extremists, anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists, and the fifth category, which is all other domestic terrorism threats. And that's the entire report. I say to you a click. I find intelligence briefs so fascinating. It makes you feel like a spy just getting to read it, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> you can just Google it. It's out there. Um, <laughs> uh, I point this out because Mike spends a good 10 minutes fear-mongering about this report, and I think it's telling how little of a foothold he needs in reality to spin a yarn that will get his audience riled up. Like, let's listen to how he, how he talks about that terminology. According to the government's new jargon, they use the term DVE for domestic violent extremist, RMVE for racially motivated violent extremist, and MVE for militia violent extremist. I'm sure you're sensing a pattern here. Uh, so Garland went on to clarify that he's talking about extremists that supposedly advocate for the superiority of the white race and not those that spent several months last year actually inciting violent racially motivated terror on the country. In fact, Garland and the entire government and media apparatus agree with and support those racial violent extremists. Mike. Mike. You literally started this whole monologue with the Jew, the Jew, uh, Merrick Garland. The Jewish Attorney General Merrick Garland. Is my life a meme? This is insane, right? So, again there, we get another Tucker Carlson favorite, the false equivalencies between the January 6th protest and the George Floyd protests. Um, We see Tucker do this all the time. How come X white people are punished when Y rioters and looters get away with burning down cities? This comes what up about constantly. Them? Yeah, it's and they love to mock the phrase "mostly peaceful protests" while playing videos of stores being looted or windows being broken or whatever. So I think the mostly peaceful claim is worth diving into for just a second. A study by the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which, by the way. They have some awesome stuff on their website. Anybody who likes data, go check them out. Um, They found that 94% of protests following the murder of George Floyd were, in fact, peaceful, with only 6% of protests involving reports of violence, clashes with police, vandalism, looting, or other destructive activity. To put that into perspective, out of 10,600 Black Lives Matter demonstrations between May and August, fewer than 570 of them involved violence. In that remaining 6%, it's not clear who instigated violent or destructive activity. While some cases of violence or looting have been provoked by demonstrators, other events have escalated as a result of aggressive government action, intervention from right-wing groups or individual assailants, and car ramming attacks. In contrast, demonstrations involving right-wing militias or militant social movements have turned violent or destructive over twice as often, or nearly 14% of the time. 
So that same study found that police took a heavy-handed and militarized approach to the BLM movement, which escalated tensions. To quote from the report, Authorities are three times more likely to intervene in pro-BLM demonstrations than they are in other demonstrations. When intervening, they are more likely to use force against pro-BLM demonstrators, 52% of the time compared to 26% of the time against all other demonstrators. These trends hold whether demonstrations have remained peaceful or not. Authorities have engaged in nonviolent protests associated with BLM more than twice as often as other types of nonviolent protests. When intervening, authorities have used force 37% of the time against peaceful pro-BLM protesters, compared to under 20% of the time against other, pe- other peaceful protesters. And, predictably enough, they found that when right-wing militias and militant social movements engage with pro-BLM demonstrators, the risk of violence increases. At least 38 distinct named far-right groups have engaged directly with pro-BLM demonstrators. Approximately 26% of these demonstrations have turned violent or destructive. The overall report is exhaustively detailed, and I really recommend people take a look at it. I'll link it in the show notes. Like, familiarize yourselves with the key points, because this is a line of attack that people like Tucker and Michael level constantly. They want to create the impression that BLM protests generate widespread violence that goes unpunished so that they can then whine that it's not fair when their team doesn't get to act with impunity. (sighs) Really really disheartening that uh, police are more violent toward uh, BLM protesters. Yeah. Almost like they're missing the point. (laughs) Almost like that's exactly what everybody has been fucking saying. (laughs) Yeah, and like, I have a friend who is really interested in attending a BLM protest. And he's talking about, like, buying body armor and, like, getting a concealed weapon and shit. And it's like, I don't really want him to do that because if you go and protest and look like the scary ones, I feel like that looks bad. But on the other hand, you're also disproportionately likely to get shot if you're a BLM supporter. And you should be safe when you go. So I don't don't know what to tell him and that that sucks. Yeah, it's... (laughs) And God, that's, it's a lose-lose situation. That's one of those things where my views have really changed a lot over the years. Where like, I used to be aggressively pro-gun, um, and then I became pretty, pretty authoritatively anti-gun. And then since then, I've swung back to being reasonably pro-gun because, like, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to want to defend themselves in this environment. No, no, it's it absolutely is. Like um, it, uh, or it's not. It's not unreasonable. Like uh, oft- it is reasonable. Often the police are the bad guys. So yeah. <sighs> um, and th- that's not like endorsing any one view. That's just it. Made me got me thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the things that get people interested in talking about gun policy are not the things that are most important about gun policy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I think. You can be, again, reasonably pro-gun while also acknowledging that American gun culture is really toxic. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the the biggest cause of firearm deaths is, like, suicide, not mass shootings or, yeah. you know, like, things like that. So, like, that's, like, almost not even a gun issue. That's, like, a mental health issue. And like Anyway, we're getting derailed, but... <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have to not talk about Nazis for a minute. 
sometimes <laughs> sometimes you just have to talk about suicide instead <laughs> <laughs> take a break <laughs> from your fun upbeat podcast so yeah uh speaking of fun upbeat times and outright lies um <laughs> let's hear mike dig a little bit deeper into this march intelligence assessment the march intelligence assessment is interesting because while it's blatantly and obviously false, and the authors no doubt know this, it provides the narrative justification needed for a totalitarian state crackdown on political dissent characterized as terrorism. For example, it claims that... I just want to pause to say, somebody brought a baby to this fucking thing. <laughs> that poor baby. Gotta get him started young. The intelligence community, this is another quote, the intelligence community assesses that the MVE threat increased last year and that it will almost certainly continue to be elevated throughout 2021 because of contentious socio-political factors that motivate MVEs to commit violence. But there were zero racially motivated white supremacist or militia terror attacks in 2020. So on what basis can you claim that it increased. Increased from what? Increased to what? It's just zero. The Jewish ADL themselves, who set the agenda and the priorities for law enforcement in the United States, had to grudgingly admit the lack of right-wing terrorism in their 2020 extremism report. I talked about it last time. Uh, and despite their rather absurd efforts to frame suicides and police shootings of criminals as right-wing extremist Related, related deaths, just related. They're just sort of, kind of, you know, somehow connected in some way. But in any case, they're only able to identify 16, 16 people that died in right-wing related incidents, most of them suicides and police shootings of actual criminals. Well, there were 20,000 murders last year in the United States. Yet this is their top priority. It's so weird to hear people say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Just like, the Jewish ADL. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. One, one thing that is kind of nice about Mike is that you don't have to do any work to figure out what he's implying. Nope. <laughs> and and, and kind of propping that up and seeing how, how similar this is to Tucker's rhetoric, I think, can be a useful example. Mike is going to put a lot of time into making the argument that white nationalist violence doesn't exist. Uh, so I'm going to preempt him a little bit on that. Sounds good. Um, first, he references the ADL's 2020 extremism report. He's talking about the report titled Murder in, Murder in Extremism in the United States in 2020 on the ADL's website. Mike is already fudging the numbers a bit, even in a little bit of you talk about this this report. Um, he says that it's mostly suicides and police shootings of criminals that are described as white right wing and related violence. Yeah, using language like that is a bit was a bit of a red flag for me because yeah. if you, what's yeah. a criminal? <laughs> yeah. So what he's talking about there, um, several perpetrators of white nationalist violence, like say they were active shooters and they killed themselves or were killed by police, those were counted in the report as white nationalist violence related deaths. Okay. Uh, so that's what Mike is bitching about there, but he's lying about it being most of the deaths. It's not. Okay. 
Um, so the report claims that in 2020, domestic, domestic extremists killed at least 17 people in 15 se- separate incidents. And yet, the report notes that this represents a significant de- decrease in the 45 extremist-related murders documented in 2019, and 54 in 2018. In fact, 2020 rated as the lowest yearly total in ADL statistics since 2004, which saw only 14 extremist murders. The report goes on to state that the main reason the number of extremist-related murders in 2020 is so low compared to the to most recent years is because of an absence of mass shooting sprees or other mass casualty attacks, like the 2019 El Paso Walmart shooting or the 2018 synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. I think that there might have been some reason why there were a few large gatherings to attack in 2020, but what? that's that's just a crackpot theory. What? No. <laughs> Did something happen in 2020? Was that this year? Um, despite the lower fatalities however the adl still documented an uptick in the total number of extremist related terror plots and attacks overall for 2020 with 16 right-wing extremist related plots or attacks an increase from 13 in 2019 i can think of one that was pretty close to home yeah we're gonna talk about that don't worry (laughs) and we always somehow end up talking about that um Don't you just love being on national news? (laughs) The report continues, quote, As has been the case for most most of the past 30 years, the extremist-related murders of 2020 were overwhelmingly associated with right-wing extremists. All but one of the incidents documented, including 16 of the 17 murders, were tied to right-wing extremism. Over half were linked to white supremacists. The remaining death was at the hands of a left-wing extremist. This past year was the second year in a row that no killings linked to domestic Islamist extremism occurred. So, Mike claims that they padded these numbers with suicides and police shootings, which is a lie. Um, I went through the incidents described in the report, and while various perpetrators of terrorist attacks did take their own lives or were killed by police, uh, that doesn't make up the majority of the death toll. He's just taking the fact that those details were included in the report and using it to make it sound like they have to stretch and fabricate all this white supremacist violence that totally doesn't exist, guys. And not just categorize the data in the most efficient way. (laughs) Here are a few of the incidents in question described in the report. June 11th, 2020. Thomas Crazy Curry, a white supremacist who was also part of the outlaw biker subculture, shot and killed three people associated with the biker gang. On September 16th, Curry killed himself during an armed standoff and hostage situation in Detroit that began after Curry fired at a police officer following a traffic stop and a chase. In conversations with police and others during the standoff, Curry admitted to the killings. Curry had white supremacist tattoos, a Nazi flag, and used the online alias of Mikhail Heilger, which was a fake name used by Nazis during World War II for bank accounts used to hold money and valuables seized from persecuted Jews. On April 12th of 2020, Mitchell Folsom, an alleged member of the Universal Aryan Brotherhood, a large and active white supremacist prison gang based in Oklahoma, was arrested on April 22nd after a brief standoff for allegedly stabbing another man, Jimmy Johnson, to death on April 12th. March 28th, 2020. Following a lengthy car chase in early April, police in Ohio arrested two men, Dustin Allen Hatfield and William Denny II who were suspects in the March 28th shooting death of David Bentley Robinson. Hatfield has since been charged with murder, but Denny does not appear to have been. ADL evaluation of tattoos and social media indicators 
suggest that the men are members or associates of the Ohio Aryan Brotherhood. February 11, 2020. Five people, four men and one woman, were charged in connection with the February 11 murder of a 14-year-old girl. All five are allegedly members of the Ghostface Gangsters, a large Georgia-based white supremacist prison gang. The girl was allegedly shot as she ran away from the gang members while they were conducting a home invasion. February 8, 2020. Ryan Joseph Dash and Brian Christopher Jensen were arrested for the shooting death of Dalton Wood during a confrontation that followed previous incidents of violence and threats between Dash and Wood. Dash's face is covered in white supremacist tattoos. Both are said by authorities to belong to white supremacist prison gangs. Dash and Jensen were charged with multiple offenses related to the murder, as well as for stealing a safe containing firearms sub sub subsequently used in the murder. February 4th, 2020. Preston Cheyenne Johnson, a white supremacist and convicted felon, charged with capital murder for the shooting death of police officer Nick O'Rear. The incident began after Johnson refused to stop for a police in Warrior, Alabama. During the ensuing car chase, the officers called for backup and O'Rear responded, joining the pursuit. Johnson fired shots at officers from his vehicle, one of which struck O'Rear in the head and caused him to crash his vehicle. An ADL investigation revealed that Johnson had numerous white supremacist tattoos and also expressed white supremacist views on social media. Johnson, a convicted felon not allowed to possess firearms, may have fled the initial encounter with police for fear of arrest on weapons charges. In February 1, 2020, Two men, Darren Peters-esque and Jared Lees-esque, were arrested for the hate crime murder of an 18-year-old black man. The victim was shot multiple times. According to police, Darren Zesk's cell phone contents included racist slurs and phrases like white power and hail Hitler, as well as a song with racist lyrics. Zesk allegedly also posted a YouTube video that included the phrases white power and kill them all. Uh, that's not including the incidences in the report ascribed to white identity adjacent groups like sovereign citizens, boogaloo boys, and men's rights activists. Uh, Mike is deliberately misrepresenting the content of the support to make it seem like they couldn't find any incidences of white supremacist violence in 2020, and that's just a lie. I recognize, though, that it might not suffice to use the report that Mike is saying is fake to debunk his claims. So, let's turn to some other resources. <laughs> FBI statistics show hate crimes rose to the highest level in more than a decade in 2019. The data show that 57.5% of reported hate crimes were motivated by racial or ethnic bias. Of those racially motivated offenses, 47.9% were motivated specifically by anti-black hatred. Religious bias motivated 20.2% of reported hate crimes in 2019, with anti-Semitism driving 57.8% of religious bias hate crimes. But Mike doesn't trust the FBI either, so let's try an analysis by the Washington Post. Don't let your head explode over there, Troy. Which found that since 2015, there have been 267 plots or attacks by far-right extremists in America, leading to 91 deaths. Oh, but wait, the Washington Post is fake news, so that's not going to work. <laughs> let's try a report by the, by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a well-respected nonpartisan think tank, so that should do the trick. To evaluate the terrorism threat in the United States, CSIS compiled a data set of 61 incidences that occurred in the country between January 1st and August 31st of 2020. These incidents included both attacks and plots. The authors coded the ideology of the perpetrators into one of four categories. Religious, violent far-right, violent far-left, and other. Of the four attacks coded as other, all were committed by adherents of the Boogaloo movement. 
This section analyzes the data in three parts. Number of attacks and plots, targets and tactics, and fatalities. For attacks and plots, most domestic terrorist attacks and plots between January 1st and August, 21st, and August 31st of 2020 were committed by white supremacists, anti-government extremists from the violent far right, and involuntary celibates, or incels. Far-right terrorists committed 67% of attacks and plots, or about two-thirds, in 2020. Far-left terrorists, by comparison, committed 20%, and extremists with other motivations, such as supporters of the Boogaloo movement, committed 7%. Many of the plots identified did not come to fruition. For example, in mid-January of 2020, six members of the base, a transnational white supremacist group, were arrested in Georgia and Maryland in charge of plotting terrorist attacks. Demonstrators were the primary targets of our terrorists in 50% of the attacks and plots, including attacks from white supremacists and others who oppose the Black Lives Matter movement. For example, on May 30th, Brandon McCormick threatened Black Lives Matter protesters in Salt Lake City, Utah, with a knife and a loaded compound bow while shouting racial slurs. As in previous years, violent far-right extremists frequently targeted government, military, and police targets. That was 18% of total incidents and private individuals based on race, gender, or other factors, under 18%. There was also an increase in vehicle attacks, most of which targeted demonstrators and most of which were committed by white supremacists or others who opposed the Black Lives Matter movement. On June 7th, for instance, Harry H. Rogers, a member of the KKK, intentionally drove his blue Chevy pickup truck into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters, injuring one. Rogers was later convicted and sentenced to six years in prison. From January to August 2020, vehicles were used in 11 violent far-right attacks, 27% of all far-right terrorist incidents, narrowly making them the weapons most frequently used in far-right attacks. This marked a significant increase from 2015 to 2019, during which a vehicle was used in only one violent far-right attack. Although vehicle attacks against demonstrators were most common among white supremacists, one such attack was committed by a violent far-left perpetrator as well. Explosives, incendiaries, and firearms remained common in both violent far-right and violent far-left attacks and plots, despite the increase in vehicle attacks linked to rallies and protests. Firearms were used in nearly a quarter of violent far-right incidences, and were used in 34% of violent far-left attacks and plots. On June 6th, local police arrested Brandon Moore in Coos Bay, Oregon, after he threatened protesters with a handgun while saying, White Lives Matter. Overall, the CSIS analysis had several findings. First, white supremacists and other like-minded extremists conducted 67% of terrorist plots and attacks in the United States in 2020. They used vehicles, explosives, and firearms as their predominant weapons and targeted demonstrators and other individuals because of their racial, ethnic, religious, or political makeup, such as African Americans, immigrants, Muslims, and Jews. Second, there was a rise in the number of anarchist, anti-fascist, and other like-minded attacks and plots in 2020 compared to previous years, which comprised 20% of terrorist incidences, an increase from 8% in 2019. These types of extremists used explosives and incendiaries in the majority of attacks, followed by firearms. They also targeted police, military, and government personnel and facilities. Third, far-left and far-right violence was deeply intertwined, creating a classic security dilemma. Since it is difficult to distinguish between offensive and defensive weapons, armed individuals from various sides reacted to each other during protests and riots, and each side's efforts to protect itself and acquire weapons generally threatened others. So that's pretty authoritative. Oh, but wait. 
the CSIS report uses data based off of the Department of Homeland Security 2020 threat assessment, so Mike won't trust that either. You get the point here. I was going to say, <laughs> detecting a pattern. Despite ample evidence of endemic white supremacist violence in the United States, there will never be sufficient evidence for guys like Mike Enoch, because his job is not to accurately describe reality. His job is to gin up white resentment and feelings of persecution among white identitarians. No data would ever be convincing enough to change this rhetoric, because the purpose of the rhetoric is to obscure the reality that the data show. Well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, this uh, I, I'm this episode has more of me reading to you than anyone <laughs> than a lot of recent episodes. <laughs> uh, true, true. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Like, there's, there's good reason to to go through all this stuff, but man, there's there's no pleasing guys like Mike. Nope. I mean, why death no state might do it. <laughs> now, then they like it, it, it would it would be an increasingly narrowing funnel. Then they would. The problems of society would be some other group's fault, non and on yeah. into infinity. Yeah, the definition of whiteness would change to suit the whatever conditions there are. Yeah. Right? Um, so Mike circles back to the March intelligence assessment, and the, this is dumb. The report further states, as another quote, the intelligence community assesses that United States RMVEs who promote the superiority of the white race are the DVE actors with the most persistent and concerning transnational connections because they have similar beliefs to groups that exist outside the United States and they frequently communicate with and seek to influence each other. We assess that a small number of US RMVEs have traveled abroad to network with like-minded individuals. The IC, that's the intelligence community, assesses that DVEs exploit a variety of popular social media platforms, smaller websites with targeted audience, and encrypted chat applications to recruit new adherents, plan and rally support for in-person actions. to disseminate materials that contribute to radicalization and mobilization to violence. But there is no racially motivated white violence or any evidence of such mobilization. So absent any actual violence or even a credible threat of it, this passage is revealed as nothing more than a blatant call to criminalize political activity. Things like spreading a political message online, seeking to convince others of your point of view, networking with like-minded people, meeting up with people in other countries in this country to trade ideas, to get together, to get to know each other, to talk politics. This is all criminal. They want everybody to think this is criminal activity because of the content of the ideas, not because anybody here or anybody in another country is planning some kind of attack because there's no examples of it. Man, he just—he has to be so vague in order to not be obviously lying. He's still obviously lying. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, it is obviously not true that people are... That they're making it illegal to have a political opinion. Yeah. Because everyone has political opinions. You can't jail everyone. Which specific political opinions might might they not like, Mike? I wonder. 
I, I I do like the first half of that clip and that he's essentially saying like, look how ridiculous this report about uh, white extremists mobilizing is. It says here that they organize in-person events and then everybody cheers because they're at an in-person event. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, the I, I think that clip makes the game being played here really clear. The idea is to take these very credible concerns about what is still a small but unfortunately growing number of violent extremist actors and to then take those concerns and pretend that it's about ordinary conservatives. It's all about looking at a white aggrieved audience and saying, this is about you. They're trying to say you're a terrorist for your views and you're a victim of it. It's recruitment. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It's like they already think you're a terrorist anyway. You might as well lean in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you spend enough time in this world of right-wing bullshit, there are certain words that lose all meaning after a while. One of those is gaslighting. It's nothing more than an excuse. It's an excuse to oppress white Americans based on our race and our political views. It can't be anything other than racial oppression and discrimination, given the fact that literally every non-white group is encouraged actively by the system to organize along racial lines. Every single one. Only us, only white people are characterized as RMVEs when we decide to do the same, when we decide to organize in our interests. The report goes on to say the IC assesses several factors could increase the likelihood or lethality of DVE attacks in 2021 and beyond, including growing perceptions of government overreach related to legal or policy changes and disruptions. In other words, they have in before themselves. If you think their policy changes themselves are bad, well, you're a terrorist. Congratulations. The hysterical government fear-mongering and frenzied media coverage of supposed white violent extremism is so pervasive, so all-consuming, that a lot of people in this country probably never stop and think, is it even true? Is it even true? People just accept it. Think about it. It's so, it's so out there. It's everywhere. Every time you turn on the TV, the radio, whatever, it's out there. It's not just in the news media. It's in the entertainment media. It's every app that has censored everybody. Facebook, Twitter, everything. They all care about this a lot. They talk about it. They form committees about it. And yet, no one ever stops to ask, is it true? And by doing that, they're gaslighting the whole population. But they don't, <laughs> they don't actually have anything. What actual evidence can the state, the news media, the social media companies, what actual evidence can they bring to bear to show that this threat actually exists? None. Zero. It doesn't exist. And I'm going to repeat this very forcefully so everybody watching this gets the picture. White domestic terrorism does not exist. It's, it's really depressing that we're never going to be able to engage on terms of reality again. Yeah. Like, every election for the rest of our lives is going to be stolen. And every terrorist attack is going to be a false flag. Every intelligence report is going to be a lie. It's... 
What do you do? What do you do? Legitimate question. Send us an email. Uh, <laughs> if you have ideas, what do we do? Please fucking let us know. <laughs> but but uh, jokes aside, like we need to fucking do something. That's the that's completely useless. Um, Democrats need to fucking ball up and actually do something that's fucking good for people, so that they're not so goddamn angry. Like seriously, like so the, that so that these grifters can't come and tell them that it's the Jews that's make the that's causing them all their suffering. Like, but that that's you're right. That's what you do. The way to de-radicalize people, ordinary people, is to govern effectively and to make their lives appreciably better. Yes. If the system is working for you, you're less inclined to want to burn it all down. Yes. I. Oh my God. I was so happy. I was so happy when Obama was in office. And I could just not think about politics. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, I do kind of think that that's, like, the the central trauma of Trump's election that happened is that, like, in the Obama years, there was kind of this sense that we all had that, like, America was on this inevitable march toward um, liberal, you know, liberal niceness. And yeah. that maybe it wasn't happening as fast as we'd like but we were inevitably we were going to get there the arc of history bends toward justice yeah and I, I and the election of trump was really sort of like oh no that arc doesn't just bend on its own we have to bend it or bad shit happens yeah yeah and maybe i'm naive i still think that uh you are just on it with the fucking metaphors today dude <laughs> <laughs> um I still think that's true. Like, I, when I look at history, like, it's just a fight between conservatives and progress. Like, we, like, we just have to, we have to yell at conservatives until they give black people the right to vote, until they give women the right to vote, until they give gay people the right to marry. Like, it's just, it, every single time we're just fighting against conservatives who are like, no, I don't wanna. And, and like, that's just what history is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, you know, when you read history, it's a straight line. And then now that we're living in it, uh, I think, like you said, we kind of expected it to be in a straight line. We're going to keep getting better. Because uh, I, I'm not saying everyone feels this way. I think it has to do with, like, when Troy and I were kids and, like, when we became adults. Um, but... But yeah, so Trump kind of like shook things up and like you said reminded us that we have to actually like <laughs> make the shit work for us and not turn the machine on and hope it works without looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like make no mistake, the Democratic Party is an incredibly ossified useless stalling organ of neoliberalism. They're a bunch of cucks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like and it really sucks that they're really the only meaningful vehicle for any possible yes <laughs> oh my god it's awful i see some hopeful things like it but it, it looks like there might be momentum for like a legitimate labor movement happening uh which would be cool fingers crossed right i, I expect that it, if that starts actually affecting pe players like amazon or walmart then we're gonna see some pretty serious backlash yeah um i mean like the, with the John Deere strike, they cut off their fucking health care. 
<sighs> like it's maybe their it, healthcare shouldn't be tied to their employment hey, yeah. for that exact reason. Just, Fuck like, you. The, the the stuff is never easy, and this has been hard for me. Where like I've really, really, really avoided any political arguments in my real life for a long time. Me too. <laughs> and I'm I'm kind of thinking like, no, maybe I should advocate for the world I want. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. E- even though it sucks and it's unpleasant. Yeah, I, I've been trying to do the same thing. Uh, when I was at school, uh, some, like, anti-abortion activists were there, and uh, they stopped to talk to me, and usually I'm just like, no, I don't want to talk to you, but I'm like, I should try to have this conversation and see what happens. Um, and, like, no one's mind was changed, obviously, but it was pleasant, and uh, I learned their names, and then when they were there a few weeks later, I, like, said hi, and we were, like, not friends, we're not going to hang out or whatever, but, like, they think that I'm a decent person, even though I disagree with them. And you're not going to be able to do that with everyone, but I think that getting practice with that is probably really good for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Especially uh, leftists. I would I would like more leftists to come do this, please. <laughs> I, I, I know that there are some, like, good criticisms of the sunlight is the best disinfectant line of thinking, but at the same time, I, I really do feel like, I mean, maybe you would still get a Mike Enoch, but the people who are in this crowd eating up what he says, you don't, th- like, that crowd is grows in isolation. That grows in, like, dark corners unchallenged by reality. Yeah. And maybe we shouldn't be so blithe about letting that happen, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, if people weren't starving, struggling to pay rent, I, uh, you, you said this to me before, uh, before we started recording last week. Um, I'm like, I am fucking killing myself trying to get through school, even though I'm not a particularly good student, and it's taking me a really long time because all I want in life <laughs> is to work a job that is a non-backbreaking job and which I can afford rent and which would allow me to afford rent uh, on a single income. And, like, college is the only way to do that. <laughs> you know, or, you know what I mean? So, like, if people were not str- desperately struggling to barely survive, I don't think that they would be in this hall with Mike Enoch. Yeah. Yeah, so then Mike's gearing up for the last leg of his speech, but before he gets into, gets into his closing argument, he has uh, one final thought on this intelligence assessment that I think is just very silly. It does not exist. The March intelligence assessment is nothing more than a propaganda document. That's why it's unclassified. It's not real intelligence. Not that they actually ever have such a thing, but it's not real intelligence. It's propaganda. It's put out there. The purpose of it is to provide a citation when the media needs a citation needed to talk about white domestic terrorism. Since they have no actual terror attacks, they have no actual incidents, they resort to an appeal to the authority of the FBI and the intelligence community and the government's assessment, which itself lacks any facts. There is no threat of racially based violent white terrorism at all. There have been zero terrorist attacks by anyone that can be credibly characterized as a white supremacist this year, last year, and going back several years. The conspicuous lack of such crimes has started to become embarrassing for the system. 
particularly given their intense focus on this issue amid a massive black crime wave that is engulfing major cities and even minor ones across the entire country. So, Mike's version of events there is that obviously all the information in this intelligence assessment is fake, but they had to release it, so then they have a citation that they can use to pretend that white supremacist violence exists. Which is essentially like how I wrote papers in high school. <laughs> but I like to think our uh, overlords in the cathedral or whatever are a bit better than that. <laughs> yes, one would think. Um, and then again, like Tucker would say that exact same thing about a crime wave. He just wouldn't call it a black crime wave. He would he would just say crime is surging and then imply that it's because of black people. Yes, it's in your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Um. But Mike has some more thoughts on black crime. The crime wave is consistently rated as one of the top concerns of voters in opinion polls. In, in these polls, the uh, white domestic terrorism, it, does, it doesn't even register. It's not, not even not in the top ten. It's not a concern at all. Nobody says they're concerned about it. Because it doesn't exist. <laughs> this year alone, we have seen 400 mass shootings. Think about that. It is, it's July. It's the end of July. And there have been 400 mass shootings in this country since January 1. 400. Zero have been committed by a white nationalist, by somebody who's pro-white, by somebody who's politically advocating for the white race. The vast majority of them have been committed by black criminals. The very people that we just heard are the ones the government is the most focused on uplifting. None of these have been done by anyone with an ideology like Mass shootings are being done overwhelmingly by black people? Yeah. It, that doesn't jive with my understanding <laughs> of that situation. Yeah, he already he's lying, we know, because he said none of these have been perpetrated by people with an ideology like ours, and I detailed several of them. His claim there can technically be true because he's stretching the definition of mass shooting pretty thin. Okay. Um, so when he says there have been 400 mass shootings this year... That does not mean that the, there are 400 mass casualty incidents. Mass shootings are usually defined as shootings that involve four or more people. Okay. Um, if you go through the list of 2021 mass shootings on the Gun Violence Archive, many of them had no casualties, and very few had more than three. Uh, it's not to downplay they're bad, obviously. Yeah. It's just... it's. The implication Mike wants to leave you with is different than the reality of the situation. Yes. Anywhere you go in the country, people are being gunned down by black extremists is what he's trying to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what we're generally dealing with here uh, are gang shootings. That's just how you get that, like, three to four people, you know. Um, or, like, altercations, like maybe a bar fight or a drive-by or a family annihilator. <laughs> um <laughs> It's a weird thing to laugh at. <laughs> uh, and like again, not to downplay the problem of gun violence in America, but what Mike is trying to do with this 400 mass shootings thing is stir up fear in his audience, in this case fear of black people, that he, that he can use to bolster the listener's sense of resentment. He's doing exactly what he pretended the ADL report did, stretching definitions and counting loosely to get the highest possible number. And we, we, we've talked quite a bit about the crime wave on, on this show and how, like, there are some reasons it might be happening and you have to take it into context of, like, yeah, crime is up, but that's compared to low crime rates for 20 years. 
Yeah, I think I remember seeing a graph where it's like the overall trend is down and it just spiked up yeah. once this year. Yeah. But the overall trend is extremely like good in favor of crime going down. Exactly, yeah. I think I've I think I've uh, plugged this before, but I really recommend checking out Alec Karakastanis on Twitter. He does a really good job of kind of breaking down what people are actually talking about when they talk about a crime wave and what gets defined as crime and why it's. I ordered his book recently. I'm excited for it to arrive. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh, a- after this, we have a very familiar narrative on our show. So as a result. As a result of this embarrassing fact, the feds and the media have been reduced to concocting stories of such terrorism, some of which have blown up in their faces, figuratively speaking, of course. So it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. So let's look at some examples. Last year's bombshell militia plot to kidnap Big Gretch, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has completely unraveled. It's been revealed as a complete FBI hoax. Thanks to excellent reporting by our own Joseph Jordan on National Life and Justice. Um, grown? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, we don't need to dive into the Whitmer plot. We talked about that so many times. It's getting up there with lab leak now, as maybe you're most talked about. I- yes, someone tried to kidnap the governor. This is not a disputable fact. <laughs> yeah. And I plugged it last time, but the A-Lab podcast stands for All Lawyers Are Bad. They have a good episode where they go through the court documents and the Whitmer plot. I recommend it. I recommend that as well. I, I, I like to point to uh, people who have done work for me, so I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit more about the reporting by uh, his friend Joseph Jordan on the Whitmer thing in a second. But l- let's let him get through this next clip first. We now know, we now know that the supposed terror plot was entirely conceived by the FBI, who used at least 12 paid informants to try to lure patsies into the scheme. In fact, only one criminal has been revealed by the case. That is lead FBI agent Richard Trask. (laughs) Some of you know where I'm going with this. So, the lead FBI agent on the case, Richard Trask, was just arrested a few days ago for brutally beating and choking his wife after an argument over attending a swingers party where men allow other men to have sex with their wives. Trask is hardly the first pervert to be revealed in the ranks of the FBI. In June, and now look, this isn't funny. In June, FBI agent David Harris was arrested in Louisiana on multiple charges of aggravated crimes against nature, indecent behavior with children under the age of 13, sexual battery, attempted third-degree rape, obscenity, and witness intimidation. That's the FBI. And it doesn't end there. The FBI's Domestic Terrorism Division, which no doubt helped author the March assessment on which Garland relies, is riddled with perverts and sexual abusers. According to Special Agent Karen Veltry, she has been sexually harassed by her superior officer, Agent Frank Cuccinota, since 2019. And when Veltry complained to his superior officer, Special Agent Robert Bennett, 
Bennett not only ignored her complaints, he started sexually harassing her. <laughs> sending her. Sending her photos of himself, pleasuring himself with a rainbow-colored dildo, and leaving messages on her phone saying that he wanted to see Justin Bieber's penis. Look, I mean, I mean, I'm not joking. You laugh, but I'm not joking. This is in the court documents uncovered by our very own Joseph Jordan. This is who these people are. This is who the FBI is. I mean, you couldn't make it up. If you said, I'm working on a novel. <laughs> I'm working on a fictional novel about a corrupt government agency. This, the editor would be like, this is, this is too much. You gotta, you gotta dial it back. Uh, <laughs> So, <laughs> yes. Oh, God. So Bennett is one of the agents investigating January 6th, and he's also been involved in some other p political frame-ups of white men, which explains why the Bureau has yet to punish him, and not, they probably just won't. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff in there that I have no interest in talking about at all because it's, <laughs> it's uh, just dark and complicated, and he's probably lying about all of it. Uh, so the thing that I am interested in is letting other men sleep with your wife is the most Sigma thing you can do. <laughs> and you're not allowed to disagree. <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to open our podcast from now on with uh, we're two Sigma males who talk about Tucker Cross. <laughs> That's us, the Tuckered Out Podcast crew. <laughs> yes, one of us is married, and both of us let other men sleep with our wives. <laughs> so what Mike did there was a, a fun little sleight of hand. Um, only one, like, he talked about this as though it's disproving the entire Whitmer plot. Only one of the agents he mentioned there had any involvement with that investigation whatsoever. That was Richard Trask, uh, who was arrested for beating his wife after an altercation related to a swingers party. The, the, the others had nothing to do with the Whitmer plot that he mentioned there. He's just describing how the FBI is filled with perverts, I guess, which he thinks makes his point. Yeah. Um, the case of the Bennett guy, he was not pleasuring himself with a rainbow dildo. He just sent a picture of a rainbow dildo in his lap. Um, hey, no kink shaming around here, okay? <laughs> Maybe don't send it to your employees. No, don't, no, don't send it to your employees. But if, if putting it in your lap works for you, then, you know, more power to you. This is all unrelated. It's just a fun shorthand for him to say, oh, you believe the FBI? Well, let me tell you, one of those guys has a rainbow dildo. Yeah, that's a, that's like a pretty classic ad hom, I think. But yeah, he, he says that this was all revealed in reporting by their very own Joseph Jordan. Joseph Jordan is another one of these neo-Nazi asshats. But before being doxxed, he went by Eric Stryker, and uh, he and Mike do a podcast together called Strike and Mike. Jordan's articles on the, on the Whitmer investigation were published on the supposedly unaffiliated National Justice News website, where uh, Jordan talked about Trask, the agent who worked on the Whitmer plot who was arrested for beating his wife. Jordan published that on the National Justice, that article on the National Justice website on March 11th with the headline "Feds Indict Own Informant as Gretchen Whitmer Kidnapping Case Unravels." That's interesting to me because 
the Revolver News article that later formed the basis for Tucker's coverage of the of the that the FBI were behind January sixth was released on June fourteenth, a full three months later, and uses the accusations of a frame up in the Whitmer case as evidence. That section of the of the Revolver News article goes like this. Something's Rotten in Michigan, the Forgotten Case of the Whitmer Kidnapping Plot. Of course, we could point to countless examples in America's history of undercover agents and informants being actively involved in various domestic terror plots. But for the purposes of the argument we're making here, we need only go back a few months prior to 1-6, to the so-called Whitmer Kidnapping Plot. Indeed, what if we told you that scarcely three months before the 1-6 Capitol siege, the FBI arrested 14 people for planning to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and overthrow the state government. And what if we told you that of the 14 individuals who allegedly plotted the kidnapping and overthrow of the state government, at least five were undercover agents and federal informants? That five undercover agents number is also repeated in a Eric Stryker slash Joseph Jordan article on uh, National Justice News. This is interesting to me because the Revolver article, which came three months later, does not have any author credited. Now, I don't necessarily think that the author was Stryker, the writing styles don't quite match up, but I do think that whoever wrote the Revolver article was cribbing from Stryker's work. And you can draw a very straight line from that to Tucker's coverage of that article, to the, to the development of Patriot Purge, which prominently featured Darren Beatty both directly reciting lines from the article and repeating Mikey Knox's blood libel phrasing. Not to be conspiratorial, but I'm seeing very clear wires here. This gets us to, uh, we're, we're done talking about the intelligence assessment now, and Mike's gearing up for his closer, and he's, he's going to rattle off a couple of other, uh, we'll be generous and call them points. <laughs> the FBI's monomaniacal focus on white domestic terrorism has had tragic results, as happened earlier this year in the case of one Brandon Scott Hole a mentally disturbed young man that shot up a FedEx facility in Indianapolis last April, killing seven people and killing himself. The boy's mother had previously reported him to the police as a potential terror threat who said he wanted to commit a mass shooting and be killed at the hands of police. The local police then contacted the FBI, who came and interviewed him in March of 2020. And according to FBI Indianapolis Special Agent in Charge Paul Keenan, the investigation into Hull was dropped because the FBI could not find any evidence that Hull was involved in any kind of pro-white racial politics. So the, here we have an actual extremely disturbed young man who says he wants to commit a mass shooting, says he wants the, shoot, the police to shoot him dead, has guns, has the capability to do it. His mother desperately calls to the police who call the FBI as they're supposed to do according to protocol. And the FBI is like, well, he's not... He's not pro-white, so whatever, like, we don't care. They totally ignored his completely inappropriate interest in My Little Pony, which is a cartoon for little girls, possibly because FBI agents have similar interests themselves. <laughs> when we released the party platform last year, some people were wondering why we place such an emphasis on abolishing the FBI. Uh, I think people understand now why we focused on this. We knew then that the FBI was a corrupt agency. 
filled with perverts and sex predators acting out a politically and racially motivated agenda, and now all of America knows as well. So, in the aftermath of the FedEx shooting and the revelation that Hull was in fact a brony and not a white nationalist, the media tried to rescue their narrative by promoting several stories that Hull was supposedly browsing racist websites, but they were never able to actually provide any evidence of this. But trying to project a white terrorist motivation on random shootings or crimes motivated by some kind of psychological breakdown is standard procedure for the U.S. media. It's just like we've said on the show over and over again. The real problem with the FBI is that they're all bronies. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. Yeah, we need to disband the FBI and implement a non-brony federal police force. <laughs> um, speaking of people who've done other work, there's a Citation Needed episode that talks about bronies and how there's actually a pretty healthy alt-right culture in the brony, brony community. So I remember hearing about that. That's... Yeah. um interesting yeah so the not necessarily mutually exclusive mike um but yeah so i nothing like jumps out at me i i'm really i don't have google in front of me or anything but um i get bad vibes from his telling of this yeah yeah so the way mike tells the story is that brandon scott hole made comments that he wanted to commit a mass shooting and be killed by police uh his mother called the police they came and investigated, but since they didn't find any evidence that he was a white nationalist, they ignored it, and Bryn Scott Hole later shot up a FedEx. And I do not believe that that is the whole story, yeah, or, that, or an accurate representation of the story. <laughs> you would be correct. that This is definitely a misrepresentation. Oh, it's like I'm picking up on a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in the case of Brandon Scott Hole, Indianapolis police had confiscated the gun and took hold into custody last year following suicide threats. An Indianapolis police report from March 3rd of 2020 references a mental health check for suicidal tendencies at Hole's address and lists Hole, then 18, as being arrested. It says the police seized a shotgun, quote, from a dangerous person. The report said the behavioral health unit initiated immediate detention on a male reported to have voiced suicidal ideation. It added that Hole had purchased a gun within the last 24 hours and talked about suicide by police, a situation in which a person prompts police to kill them. These details were confirmed in a statement from FBI Indianapolis Special Agent in Charge, Paul Keenan. Quote, In March 2020, the suspect's mother contacted law enforcement to report he might try to commit suicide by cop. The suspect was placed on an immediate detention mental health temporary hold by the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. A shotgun was seized as, at his residence. Based on items observed in the suspect's bedroom at the time, he was interviewed by the FBI in April of 2020. No racially motivated violent extremism ideology was identified during the course of the assessment and no criminal violation was found. The shotgun was not returned to the suspect. So, uh, Mike is basing his entire telling of events here off of that one line that no racially motivated violent extremist ideology was found. However, it's not the case that the police just said, oh, well, he's not a racist, let's move along. Right. His guns were confiscated and he was admitted under mental health watch, um, which Mike conveniently leaves out. Yep. 
And then he's got another example, which I only left this in because I wanted to clock all of the times that he uses the phrase blood libel. The mass shooting atrocity in Atlanta earlier this year, in which a psychologically disturbed young man who said he was a sex addict, but not a racist, he insisted on this point, shot eight people at an Asian massage parlor, was nevertheless characterized by the media as a white supremacist hate crime against Asian people. It was a cynical lie. And it was a lie, and it was a blood libel against white people. And it was an attempt, and it was an attempt to stir up hatred for whites among Asian people. And it was also used to deliberately draw attention away from the plight of the women that work at such establishments, who are often the victims of international sex traffickers. They sure do seem to like when he says blood libel, huh? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I like the implication that he gives a shit about sex trafficking. Like, yeah. Like, a, a big problem with QAnon, among many, is that they, with their sort of fervent pedophilia terror, they take energy away from, like, actual cases of human trafficking and distract from real situations where that's going on. When one of these QAnon wackos reports something, police have to take that seriously, and that diverts resources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Mike's full of shit, and I mean we, <laughs> nothing new. <laughs> and that spa shooting, we don't need to dive into because, like it, it's pretty clear there was some like Asian fetishization stuff going on there that, frankly, I don't feel qualified to tackle. Uh but then here, oh, how the tables do turn. <laughs> One week later, Ahmad Al Issa, the son of a wealthy, liberal Syrian immigrant family, shot up a supermarket in Colorado and killed 10 people, all of them white. In the time between the shooting and the media's release of the shooter's identity, racial attacks on white people and accusations that it was yet another, another, another. When was the first? But these people were convinced there had been others because they were told endlessly that white people are the main terrorists in the country. So when there's a shooting, they jump to this conclusion. We've all seen it. Every time there's a mass shooting, online, on Twitter, on Facebook, in the media, they start speculating and worrying about it. And we know, because we're familiar with what's happened, inevitably, it's going to collapse on them and it's going to be dropped. And as a result of that, these shootings go uninvestigated. Nobody wants to know what the roots of them are. Nobody wants to understand where they come from or how they happen. Because that the only thing they're interested in is so-called white supremacy. That's it. Not only was the shooter not white, but his social media history was filled with anti-white racial sentiments of the sort that are regularly spouted by the Jewish media, regularly spouted by intellectuals, by liberal celebrities. The obvious question of whether or not these narratives played a role in the slaughter of 10 innocent white people is never asked. Even an atrocity like the Boulder shooting does not cause the anti-white elites to hesitate in pushing their anti-white racial narrative. Even 10 white people shot down, cold blood, no mercy, by someone who said he hated white people online. They never thought. So... What happened here? This story is actually really sad. The shooter in this case, Ahmad al-Issa, um, had uh, a, a pretty well-documented history of mental illness and paranoia. In a phone interview with the Daily Beast, 
Alyssa's older brother, described him as paranoid and very antisocial. He told the outlet that he was sure the shooting was not at all a political statement, it's mental illness. The Denver Post interviewed members of Alyssa's high school wrestling team. He was kind of scary to be around, said Dayton Marvel, a teammate on the wrestling team. Alyssa once had an outburst and threatened to kill people during an intra-team match, Marvel said. His senior year, during the wrestle-offs to see who makes varsity, he actually lost his match and quit the team and yelled out in the wrestling room that he was, like, going to kill everybody, Marvel said. Nobody believed him. We were all just kind of freaked out by it, but nobody did anything about it. He said that he did not like spending time with Alyssa, and that Alyssa was not close with anyone on the wrestling team. Another teammate, Angel Hernandez, said Alyssa got into a fight in the parking lot after a match. The other wrestler was just teasing him and goes, maybe if you were a better wrestler, you would have won. Alyssa just lost it. He started punching him, Hernandez said. Hernandez said that Ahmad frequently appeared to be paranoid about perceived slights against him, and Marvel said that Alyssa was often concerned about being targeted because of his Muslim faith. Quote, he would talk about him being Muslim and how if anybody tried anything, he would file a hate crime and say they were making it up, Marvel said. It was a crazy deal. I just know he was a pretty cool kid until something made him mad. And then whatever made him mad, he went over the edge. Way too far. He was always talking about how people were looking at him, and there was no one ever where he was pointing people out, Hernandez said. We always thought he was messing around with us or something. In 2017, Al-Issa, then 18, attacked a classmate at Arvada West High School, according to an affidavit filed in the case. He punched the classmate in the head without warning and when the boy fell to the ground, Al-Issa continued to punch him. The classmate suffered severe bruises and cuts to the head, according to the affidavit. Witnesses told police that they didn't see or hear any reason for Al-Issa to attack the classmate. Al-Issa later told officers that the classmate had made fun of him and called him racial names weeks earlier, according to the affidavit. He was convicted of misdemeanor assault in 2018 and was sentenced to probation and 48 hours of community service. Damien Cruz, a friend of Alyssa, said this. He talked about how Muslims were all treated horribly. They weren't treated equally as everybody else. Just because how their names were spelled, they were putting a frame on him that he was ISIS. Just because of how his name is spelled and where he's from, that's not right. And I could see where he was coming from, but I just don't know why he would choose this way to get his point across, Cruz told CNN. Law enforcement sources said investigators were looking at the possibility that mental illness was a significant factor in the violent rampage, including paranoia, which appears to have intensified in recent months. On a Facebook page belonging to Alyssa that has since been removed, he posted in 2019 that he believed his former high school was hacking his cell phone. In a comment, someone asked why the school would do that. Alyssa blamed racism, quote, I believe part racism for sure. I believe someone spread rumors about me which are false and maybe that set it off. The source cautioned that the investigation is ongoing, but the two sources said that there is nothing at this point to ind indicate the suspect had, had been radicalized or the ideology played a role in the shooting spree. So, I read probably 20 different pieces of reporting on this story, and I never found any allusion to uh, Alyssa posting about hating white people or any of the shit that Mike Enoch is claiming. What I think is happening here is that Mike is taking Alyssa's concerns about experiencing racism and, and anti-Muslim bigotry and interpreting that as anti-white sentiment, which is fucked up. Yeah. 
But yeah, he th- th- there's clearly. I mean, he he thought his former high school was tapping his cell phone. He had a history of paranoia. Like w- when he committed the shooting, he went in wearing like a tactical vest and then stripped most of it off and ended up like taking his shirt off by the time he was arrested. The whole situation is just like it, it, this is a guy who needed help. Yeah, um, it's probably the best way to put it. I was. <laughs> Yeah, so it feels like a failure of our system. That yeah, and Mike pretending that it was uh, anti-white racial attack when all evidence says that there was no ideology like that in play is yeah. gross. Yeah. Um. So then he's got one more story of a crime here, and this one I thought was maybe the most interesting. All right. I mean, we could do the thing of saying, "What if the races were reversed?" But we all understand it. But the thing is, they never are. They never are reversed. It's always only one way. In another case, uh, a deranged individual named Nathan Allen shot two people in a small suburb of Boston just a couple weeks ago. I think some of you guys might remember this attack. This is the one that they, they think they had it this time. They had it because the guy had no history online, he had no posts, he had nothing, so they could make up whatever they wanted about him. The media and the authorities wasted no time in framing Allen's attack as a white supremacist terror attack despite any lack of evidence. Allen had no history of posts about race, he had no history of racial sentiments at all. The DA in this case, a black racial activist named Rachel Rollins, claimed that she was in possession of a notebook which contained white supremacist writings which she only provided excerpts of them to the press, just excerpts. Never Never the notebook itself, just excerpts. The physical notebook has not been produced for the press or the general public to view and given that the suspect is dead and there will be no trial, she'll never have to produce it. Rollins also claimed that he hid his views so well that his family was totally unaware of them. Now, according to Huffington Post reporter Christopher Mathias, an unlikely... Oh, you'd be surprised here, though. Check this out. (laughs) An An unlikely source for this information. He says that he talked to a law enforcement source who refused to elaborate on the notebooks and wouldn't tell him where they were found or how they were found. And this guy, as we all know, is an enemy reporter. He is out there reporting on so-called hate and extremism. He thought he had a big story. He calls the cops and like, we, we, can't, we really can't talk about it. Because they, they they're not going to produce it. He further uncovered that many of the words and phrases used in the notebook, including the unusual term apex predator, have been posted the day of the shooting on a Boogaloo Boy Telegram account that's actively monitored by law enforcement. Meaning that when Rachel Rollins and her office needed to concoct a white supremacist terror attack, they simply copied some content from a random Boogaloo Telegram account and attributed it to Allen. It's clear as day. It's clear as day to anybody that knows what's going on. And they betray their fakery because of their laziness. They mix up the categories. The Boogaloo Boys are an anti-racist libertarian militia. And Rollins is saying Allen was some crazed white supremacist. What's worse, the lies or the laziness? I don't know.
Okay, that one was kind of complicated. Yeah, there are a lot of layers to that one. Yeah. Yeah, so this guy, Nathan Allen. What happened with this crime, he stole a box truck, um, crashed into a house, and then kind of ran about for a bit, tried to steal a car, it didn't work, um, and then he shot and killed two black people before um, being killed in a shootout with police. So, the victims were identified as Ramona Cooper, a staff sergeant in the Air Force who was still active in the military, and retired Massachusetts State Police Trooper Dave Green. Uh, After crashing the box truck into a house and climbing out the passenger window, Allen unsuccessfully attempted to carjack another driver. Sources say that Allen then saw Cooper walking and fatally shot her, and a bit later shot and killed Green. Cooper was shot three times in the back, and Green was shot four times in the head and three times in the torso. Both victims were black. What's interesting here is that um, Nathan Allen encountered several people over the course of this attack who he did not choose to kill, including the person who he unsuccessfully tried to carjack. The only people that he shot were the only two black people that he saw. Which gives me a clue that there was some racial motivation here. Yeah. Um... In regard to this notebook that Enoch is claiming doesn't exist, because why would they only release excerpts of it? Um, As evidence, he points to a Huffington Post article by Christopher Mathias, where Mathias reached out to a law enforcement officer to inquire about the notebook, and the officer refused to to give him any information about where or when the notebook was found. Um, Enoch is misrepresenting the tone of that article pretty heavily, uh, Christopher, Christopher Matthias does not seem to think that that's suspicious. Uh, maybe the officer just didn't know. The excerpts from the notebook um, that have been released contain phrases like, white people are apex predators. Enoch points out that this phrase also appeared on a Boogaloo Boy telegram channel the same day of the shooting. Um, an expert who Christopher Matthias interviewed for that article thinks that Nathan Allen may have been the author of that post. I don't know if there's evidence corroborating that. I wasn't able to find any. So it's possible. I don't know. Uh, it's also possible he was on the Telegram channel and liked that phrasing, used it in his journals. Or, I mean, Apex Predator's not that weird of a term for two people to come up with. I was going to say, like, that's a commonly used phrase. Yeah. Um, and to think how ridiculous uh, Enoch's framing is here. That <laughs> it was so convoluted, I couldn't keep it straight yeah. in my head. Yeah, this is insane. So his version of events is that Nathan Allen, for some unknown reason, snapped, stole the truck, shot two black people, got killed by police. So then, the DA, Rachel Rollins, decided this is a good opportunity to pretend that there was white supremacist violence. So what we're going to do is we're going to have somebody go to this Boogaloo Boy Telegram channel, copy and paste some... Uh, inflammatory posts, and then we'll pretend that it's from a notebook that we found in Nathan Allen's room. What could go wrong? Like, to what end? Like, for Mike Enoch specifically to find it, to uncover? <laughs> yeah, th- th- this is insane. This is the implication being, oh, we just we need an excuse to frame up white people. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> nobody did that, I promise. In no, no conceivable reality. Absolutely not. And, no. like, it's it's already... Okay, he shot one of the girls four times in the head? Yeah. That's not the kind of thing you do when you, like, just want to kill someone. Like, he... That, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. But that screams, like, hate crime to me to, like, make it as violent as possible. Yeah. 
you don't need to shoot someone in the head four times to kill them. Like you're you're being gratuitous. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I'll, we'll have a little bit more to talk about with this case, but I, I want to let Mike elaborate on how bad this prosecutor is, man. Now, this is not the first time Rollins has lied. She lied to advance her career in the past. She was caught lying to the Boston Globe, not exactly a friendly newspaper, in 2019, claiming that she was harsher on violent crime than her predecessor, which is false. She was forced to retract this statement and apologize. She is one of a number of extremist district attorneys in the United States whose election was funded by Jewish billionaire George Soros. Like Kimberly Gardner in St. Louis, a black woman, Kim Fox in Chicago, another black woman, and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, oh God, a Jewish man, Rollins has used her office to advance a racial agenda, not to enforce the law. And there's many more of these DAs across the country. All of these Soros-fronted prosecutors have turned their cities into war zones by releasing violent black criminals onto the streets. They're all extremely unpopular, but their financial backing from one of the richest Jews in the world makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the people that have to live in those cities to remove them. <laughs> Rollins' current focus is a campaign to overturn thousands of murder and drug convictions of black criminals in Boston, which will predictably result in a massive increase of violent crime in yet another a major American city. Does anyone really doubt that someone like Rollins would fake a racial hate crime in order to advance her own career and the anti-white agenda of herself and her benefactor, George Soros? No. <laughs> it's our old buddy, George. Yeah. And this narrative of Soros prosecutors is not new to me. So at this point, I want to take a brief detour to revisit our good friend, Tucker Carlson. Oh, um, Yeah. We're a podcast about Tucker Carlson, by the way. (laughs) Here's a clip from Tucker Carlson Originals' very first documentary, Chicago in Crisis, released in April. Brought to Chicago by Cook County Prosecutor Kim Fox. Carjackings across Chicago have more than doubled and are becoming increasingly violent. Kim Fox was elected with more than $2 million in cash from billionaire George Soros. She's engaged like all these big city prosecutors that came up through Soros. Martin Pribe is a beat. Here's another one. Of a movement of activist prosecutors that spell catastrophe for this country. The prosecutors are funded by a Soros-backed foundation called the Justice and Public Safety Pact. It's directed by a person called Whitney Timas. Prosecutors have more power and greater discretion to impact the system, really, than anyone, including judges. The plan is working. In her first year as Chicago's top prosecutor, Kim Fox dropped charges against nearly 30% of felony defendants. And just for the sake of the rule of the threes, here's one from Tucker Carlson tonight talking about... uh, L.A. prosecutor named George Gascon. George Gascon was sworn in as the district attorney of the city of Los Angeles on Monday of this week. That would be yesterday. Now, if you've not heard that name, you should know that Gascon is best known for destroying the city of San Francisco. He was the district attorney there 
for eight years, from 2011 to 2019. Under his tenure, San Francisco led the state of California in property crimes and violent crimes, but ranked near the bottom in arrests. Now, you might be wondering, was someone with a track record like that, how that person could move up and become DA in Los Angeles, or anywhere for that matter? And the answer, of course, is that he had powerful help. Gascon's campaign received millions of dollars from George Soros and other left-wing donors, people who don't live anywhere near the communities he plans to destroy. And he does plan to. I do not appreciate being reminded of how snide and smarmy Tucker Carlson is every time he opens his stupid fucking mouth. Yeah, like, at least Mike is direct. Yeah, I really appreciate it, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, so then let's wrap up this particular leg of Mike's speech. If the notebook exists, why not produce it? There's no legal reason not to. In cases where the FBI incites a random schizophrenic person to make violent statements online before they arrest them, every single edgy political thing in their house is displayed in a photograph for the entire country within an hour of their arrest. We've all seen it. Even that guy with the Saudi Arabian flag, if you all remember. So where's the notebook? It doesn't exist. It's a lie. And it's not only a lie, it's a blood libel. So, what I do want to point out is that there may be a good reason they're not releasing the full notebook. Um, and it's that Nathan Allen had a wife and other family members who, by all accounts, did not seem to share his ideology or be aware that Nathan Allen was full of uh, white supremacist hate. And... Um, we do know from some of the excerpts released from the notebook that Nathan Allen wrote about his wife. For example, he said, uh, he wrote that maybe he could con convert his wife to his views, but probably not. And went on to say that men need to kill, it's in their nature, and women can't understand men. So, um, and Rachel, and Rachel Rollins in her statements about the case talked about the the pain that Nathan Allen's family has experienced as well as a result of his actions. Now, it stands to reason to me that this full notebook, which, by the way, was Nathan Allen's personal journal, could in fact contain personal information about his wife that they don't necessarily want to release to the public and incur further harm or doxing on her, given that, is, that this community is pretty toxic. That is an extremely good reason to not release it. <laughs> yeah. So, um... At this point, he, we, we've only got a couple of these left. Mike's gearing up for the closer. The federal government right now is contracting with an anti-white NGO, means a non-Gentile organization, called Moonshot CVE, that's Countering Violent Extremism, and many other such organizations to identify internet search terms used by military personnel that they classify as RMVE related. If a soldier searches for such terms, he is flagged for review and will end up being kicked out of the military. The terms include things like, it's okay to be white, and the truth about Black Lives Matter. So if you're in the US military, or if you're really anybody else in the entire country, and you think it's okay to be white, the government plans on treating you like a potential terrorist. Think of the implication. The government, our government, unfortunately, it's true, 
wants to treat people like terrorists simply for thinking it's okay to be white. Do we even need to talk about this? this not, not, not a lot. No. He, in his own context that he gave, that's not what they said or implied. Yeah. Yeah, so this company that the, the Department of Defense is contracting with, Moonshot CVE, uh, it's a startup that tracks extremist, extremist sentiment online and um, tries to re- redirect users exposed to that content with uh, hopefully de-radicalizing suggestions, um, which I'd have some questions about. But uh, give, and I haven't looked into this, but at least reading Moonshot's own data, it seems like they've had some success. Uh, from their website, some of their most successful efforts have used emotions to appeal to those looking at violent content. For example, the most successful ad that they tested said anger and grief can be isolating. The company also offers mindfulness exercises to people searching on the internet for violent extremist content. Between November 2020 and February 2021, someone searching for content about white supremacism, armed groups, or conspiracy theories on YouTube watched a de-escalation breathing exercise all the way through more than half a million times. They also, ta- they also talked about how um, there were several times in which they would, uh, would send like, ads for mental health services to people searching, searching for extremist content and had pretty good uh, hit rates. I'm pretty good given the scope of it. I think something like 15% of people... It was higher than that. They clicked on the mental health ads, and then fifteen percent of people voluntarily returned to those those resources. Um, so, as far as its contract with the Department of Defense, Mike Enoch is lying about how that works. So, Moonshot's report to report on extremism in the military ranks, and this is from a Department of Defense press release. Uh, Moonshot's report on extremism in the ranks will quantify the problem by by geolocating search data to determine on which basis troops are searching for violent extremist content. Search data is a great statistic to evaluate because, unlike social media, it's not performative, and people may search for things they aren't comfortable talking about with friends. The data, which will be be anonymized and can't be traced back to a particular person, will show which bases and which branches have the most people searching for this type of information online. So Mike is saying that this is a way for them to single out people who think it's okay to be white, but there's no personal identifying information with this. They're just trying to get a sense of like what bases and what branches of the armed services uh, this stuff is endemic in. Okay. Um, so. Uh, yeah, um, and now we get to Mike's closer. These kinds of stories have become so mundane in America today that we don't, sometimes we don't process the enormity of this, what this really means. People are so used to hearing about white terrorism, hate crimes, hate speech, hate this, racism, blah, 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 blah. They almost never question the genesis of these narratives, the reasoning behind them, or if they're even true. They just become part of life something inevitable that everybody has to deal with, but never questions. So I would describe that as exactly what Mike and Tucker do to people's ability to perceive truth. Yeah. Um, but there's a purpose behind all this, Tyler. Can you guess what it is? It's, it, it's, it's, it might be to persecute white people. <laughs> <laughs> 
White liberals tend to glom onto these narratives. They repeat them. They get emotional, intellectual satisfaction out of repeating them. They get invested in them as a form of status seeking. They'll fight to protect them because their own self-image as a wonderful, benevolent person is totally wrapped up in them. Conservatives try their best to avoid the minefield by accepting the fundamental premise and trying to conform to it in ways that are perceived as awkward or low status by liberals. This is a behavior pattern that only increases the vehemence of liberal attacks and creates more narratives and more situations that are characterized as racist, fragile, privileged, abusive, or harmful, and now even terroristic. Think about it. If the threat of white terrorism does not exist in reality, what purpose could such a narrative serve? What's the reason for it? Why do the media and the government and the police and the FBI constantly repeat this? There's only one reason. It's a racial attack on white people. And then, uh, so up until now, this has been troubling. But this clip, this is where I felt a little bit like, this This is scary. It took you this long? <laughs> I mean, I spend a lot of time in this shit, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this genuinely unsettled me. It's racial and political oppression. Given the facts, it cannot be anything else. And ultimately, ultimately... Who does it serve? Who is it that sees white racial advocacy as so threatening to their own power that they would libel an entire race with a bogus terrorism narrative? The answer is easy. Just look at who's actually doing it. Who controls the media? Who controls the national security apparatus? It is well known by everyone that the United States media is controlled by Jews. But lots of people probably assume that the national security apparatus is controlled by white men. That's not the case. The Biden administration is 75% Jewish in the top cabinet post. 2% of the country, 75% of the top cabinet post. And they occupy the most powerful cabinet posts. Those positions involved in law enforcement, national security, and domestic terrorism. Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, Jewish. Alejandro Mayorkas, head of the Department of Homeland Security, Jewish. David Cohen, Deputy Director of the CIA, Jewish. Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence, Jewish. Ann Neuberger, Director of Cybersecurity, Jewish. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, Jewish. And I could go on. These Jews in the government and media that libel us as domestic terrorists for being racial activists in our own cause are themselves fanatical, racists, and terrorists. All of them are staunch Zionists, defenders of the rogue state of Israel, the main exporter of terrorism on this planet. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Here we are. Okay. Oh, God. Oh, that's, that's dark, right? This is how Holocausts happen. Yeah, like, that That crowd was so unsettling to me. Just... What if this guy ran for president? Like, 
he'd probably win. I have seen people directly advocating for it on the Tucker Carlson subreddit. Oh. Um, there was a... This a, isn't scripted. <laughs> I Anyone listening? I, <sighs> no, th- there was a poll recently. Somebody, I believe the options were who should run for president, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, or um, Rand Paul. And uh, one of the top comments said, whoever the NJP runs, honestly... To which another user replied, we like Mike. Oh, okay. So, so the thesis here, uh, as should be a surprise to no one, is that the reason things aren't good for you, white people, is because of the Jews. Like, this was so disheartening. Like, we really can't get past this. This is yeah. still that has this much pull. Yeah, <laughs> this kind of made me laugh, though. Who has killed more people in 2021? White nationalists or Zionist Jews? Who has committed more terrorist attacks? Who kills more and terrorizes more every single year? These people don't have a moral leg to stand on in calling anyone else an extremist or a terrorist. Now, some will want to characterize what I'm saying as a conspiracy theory, but I can prove everything I've said. They can't prove a single shred of what they say about white people. (laughs) I can prove everything I've said. I've just spent, I think, three hours. Yeah, we're approaching uh, the three-hour mark. He, he most certainly cannot. <laughs> no. Nope. See, but what you failed to account for is that he doesn't live in the same plane of reality as us. No. So no. facts don't matter. He doesn't give a shit. His his whole project is to obscure the reality the facts point to. Yeah. Yeah. Y- you, you can criticize his reel without doing this... Yeah, like, there, there is no, I mean, again, shouldn't have to say it, but if anybody's unclear, there is no good reason to ever do this. No. This is never okay. No. Against any group of people, really. So, here is our last clip. Who's the conspiracy theorist? Who's the conspiracy theorist? Who's rivaling an entire race? Who's really hateful? Mike! Yes! Mike! Ultimately, these people hope that they have poisoned the well with so many years of propaganda, with so many lies, that even as all their lies fall apart, the stigma they have created against white racial organizing will persist. But for that time, that stigma, it's all coming to an end. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We are fed up with being lied to and being lied about. We will not be cowed by the blood libel of the wealthy and powerful. This is why we formed the party. Yes, this is why we formed the National Justice Party. We know the truth. We will continue to organize for ourselves, for our race, and for our freedom. Thank you.
so I, I wanted to do this episode because I can't imagine why. <laughs> I mean, I, I I stumbled onto this and ma- made this connection to Darren Beatty because, like, I mean, Darren Beatty, who runs in explicitly white nationalist circles, spoke at the HL Making Club conference, and is using not only the exact same arguments, like to the specifics that Mike Enoch and uh, the National Justice Party are using, but the phrasing of the this blood libel. I'm certain he got that phrasing from this speech. Yeah. Um, or something else Mike Enoch has done at least. Like that that he's parroting Mike Enoch hundred percent. And uh Tucker is a single degree of separation from that. Yeah, it's arguably zero since Tucker's documentary featured Darren Beatty. Yes, like it and Darren Beatty's Revolver News, which I think a lot of that article was based off of the work of fucking Eric Stryker, um I mean, that is what directly led to Patriot Purge's creation, that narrative. So we have a very clear line here from the National Justice Party's propaganda to Tucker Carlson's latest fucking documentary. This is the shit being mainlined into the into the mainstream by the most watched cable news host in America. Uh, we're doomed. Uh, good night, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I just, like, it, I, I know you said it kind of tongue-in-cheek that this is how Holocaust happened, but this is how Holocaust happened. It, yes, yes, I, I, I was saying that tongue-in-cheek, but also, uh, yes. <laughs> so, um, don't do any of what Mike just did, and you're doing better than Mike. Yeah. Uh, that can be a takeaway. You're doing better than Tucker, and... <laughs> Doing better than Tucker. I know Hitler comparisons are are mundane these days. <laughs> like, if there was one episode of our show I would ever want Tucker to listen to, like, listen to this episode, Tucker. Like, what do you think of this? Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're proud that this is the shit you're peddling. I hope I hope he's proud. I wouldn't hope for that too loudly. Because he probably is. <sighs> yeah. So, we will be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, just have a real quick chat. Um, when you made the Patreon tiers, it wasn't initially, um, like, an intention to have, like, to, like, for Sworn Enemy to be... I call you the sworn enemy at the end of the episode, but I kind of did that because I'm really bad at improv comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I fear that some, that uh, certain people may have joined at that tier uh, to get a second shout out at the end as the sworn enemy of the show. So I feel an obligation to do that now. (laughs) Um, We both uncovered a conspiracy today. Yeah. So, um, so before we go, uh, Adam is the sworn enemy of the show, and... <laughs> fuck you, Adam. <laughs> go fuck yourself, Adam. It's all, it's all your fault, Adam. <laughs> um, um, and, and for, for a, for a more earnest answer, um, economic inequality, uh, seems to be, like, the biggest cause of, of these kinds of things, uh, propagating, so, um... 
hey, Democrats, please do something about that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I know this is a crazy thing, a crazy idea, but passing policies that are popular is a good way to get reelected. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't get too crazy on them here, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Um yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see you next week with something it probably won't be anything like cheery, but it won't be as bad as this. I'm confident in that. Um don't give Troy a challenge <laughs> though. <laughs> But in the, and today we're reading, we're just doing a reading of the diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and until then, we have a website that's tuckeredoutpod.com. We're on Twitter, at tuckeredoutpod. Uh, there's a Facebook group, Wokeristas. Um, and we're on Patreon. Um, we have many, many lovely supporters. We love you very much. And I think that's all of them. Um, Thank you for not holding it against me when I didn't have this on Wednesday. I just I really wanted to make sure that I covered all my bases and did a good job on this one and rather than release a half-assed episode. Um, I hope it was worth it. So. Also, I had exams. It wasn't entirely Troy's fault. <laughs> um, it made things more difficult. Yeah, th- th- there was a day, and I, this isn't a criticism, it's fine, but there was a day I thought we might record later in the day and that I didn't hear from Tyler for about 18 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, oh, maybe that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was having a bad time that day, um, but I did okay in my exams, so that was nice. Good job, everybody! Congratulate <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> um, all right. So I thank think, you, everyone, in advance. I think that's probably all we got in the tank. Um, see you next time. Don't watch Tucker's show. I'll do it for you. Try to enjoy your life. And thanks for listening. Fuck up, it's gonna get better.